I know that so much suffering didn't have to happen, but the system made it happen. And I think that's why I am who I am today, fighting for all of the young people who are different and who don't know that they're different and just think that they're wrong. When you say that the system made it happen, what is it that you would like to have seen different? What, like, how, how could the system have responded and treated you differently so that it didn't end up being so traumatic for you? I don't think anyone ever asked me what I needed. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 6 of the Campfire Conversations. The theme of today's episode is around supporting children and young people with mental health issues and with barriers to school attendance more widely. Often when we talk about this issue we talk about statistics such as the deeply concerning fact that the number of young people taking their own lives and self-harming have increased sharply in recent years. The statistics around school absenteeism as well are also deeply troubling. Incredibly, there are now around a million people in the UK who are classed as persistent absentees from school, and around 100,000 of these miss more than 50% of their time at school. And we know very little about these young people because schools aren't particularly expected to find out. Often they're simply classed as school refusers, which just makes them sound stubborn or something. As galling as these figures are, it's really hard to get a grip on the nature of this problem without examining some of the personal stories, the lived experiences of these young people and the families behind these statistics. This was an incredibly powerful conversation for that reason, because we do just that in this conversation, exploring the lived experience of young people with mental health problems and with barriers to attendance, as well as hearing from some of their parents and carers. This was such an important conversation for me, for everyone who took part in it, and for those who joined the live stream on Facebook on Saturday. It really was profoundly moving and eye-opening and it became clear early on in this conversation that this was going to have to be a much longer episode than we usually have for these campfire conversations. In fact, it came in at around two and a half hours, which is twice the length of a normal episode. But I really think it's important that as many people as possible take the time to listen to these stories so as to connect emotionally to this enormous issue which is so often not really talked about, but which is of such critical importance to so many young people. Of all the things we talk about on the Rethinking Education podcast, there is perhaps no issue of greater importance than doing everything that we can, individually and collectively, to improve the lot of young people who are struggling with mental ill health or who are struggling to attend school for some other reason. What's frustrating, but also is really a cause for hope, is that the solutions that we talk about in this episode, they're not difficult to implement. They really aren't. 
And although funding is always an issue, this is not something that we have to wait for politicians to act on. As we will hear towards the end of this episode, there are loads of things that educators, parents and carers and young people themselves can do to provide more support to those of us who aren't okay in school. As Lucy says at one point in this episode, you just don't know how vulnerable someone might be. So take the time to ask them, check in, ask them, are you okay? And if they aren't, follow it up with, what do you need? And listen to them and take them seriously. In this episode, we are joined by Fran Morgan, the founder of SquarePeg, an organisation that's dedicated to this issue of raising awareness and providing greater support for the square pegs in the round holes. Ellie Costello, who is the director of SquarePeg. Liddy, Ellie's daughter, who is age 12. Will Carter, a Fulbright scholar and a PhD student currently at Berkeley in California, who recently appeared on This Morning with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby in a piece entitled The Boy Who Came Over Severe Dyslexia, who's now studying a PhD. And there's a link to that in the show notes if you're interested to watch it. B. Herbert, who is a psychologist and the founder of States of Mind, an organisation dedicated to providing young people with the psychological skills, knowledge and self-awareness that is required for them to thrive in the world. Lucy Lovett, who is an 18-year-old college student with an interest in autism and mental health, who shares an incredibly moving story of her experience in recent years. Anna Allen, who is a speech and language therapist and the parent of a child who has struggled with school attendance. Heidi Mavia, or Mavia, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, sorry Heidi, an autistic parent to an autistic teen. Heidi is also a public speaker, an activist, an advocate and a mental health first aider with a particular interest in supporting families whose children have barriers to education. Lottie Cook, a young journalist and a student and a member of Pupil Power, an organisation dedicated to involving young people more in conversations around what happens in, in education and campaigning for more funding and so on. And Deborah Nelson, who currently works for Football Beyond Borders, an organisation that uses football to change the lives of young people and who also speaks very movingly about her own experiences of struggling to attend school for various reasons. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode, and I would really like it if you tell one other person about this episode and recommend that they listen to it to spread the word. I really think that this is such an important conversation, and it should be heard or watched by as many people as possible. If you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to access the video version, the link is in the show notes. So without further ado, I will hand over to the conversation that we had on Saturday. I hope you enjoy this conversation and there are enjoyable moments in it, certainly, although it is definitely quite challenging to listen to in places as well. Hello, everyone um, uh, who's watching and everyone who is uh, on the screen with me today. Welcome to 
another episode of Rethinking Education Campfire Conversations, which are group conversations for people who want to rethink and reshape and reform education in such a way as to maybe bring about a more harmonious and less hair-raising state of world affairs. So it's wonderful to be joined by some amazing people today. And so we're going to go around the screen and I'd like you to just each introduce yourself. If you could, you could just say your name and where you are in the world and also why you're interested in joining this conversation. And like last week, the, for the first time last week, we had a theme which was around self-directed learning. And the theme this week is around um, young people's mental health and young people who struggle to attend school for various reasons. So let's start with you, Lucy. Um, away you go. So, hi, I'm Lucy. I'm joining you all from Warwickshire in the UK. <laughs> I didn't realise that, that there were going to be people from like New York. I'm just like imagining someone like five hours before and it'd be like whoa um so i'm joining the conversation because i've had a bit of a so i'm 18 i've had a bit of a uh tumultuous experience within the mainstream and the non-mainstream uh education systems kind of as a result of mental health and mental ill health and autism so that's kind of why I'm here. <laughs> Lovely, thank you. Uh, B. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm B. I'm a psychologist and the founder of States of Mind, um, joining from New York. And so States of Mind is a social enterprise. And, oh, sorry, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> rabbit demolishing things in the background <laughs> um so we i guess the one of the reasons that i set up states of mind is we wanted to take therapeutic practice out of clinical settings and into young people's everyday lives and one of the settings we were really keen to bring that to was education and through that process we've learned a lot working in a more trauma-informed and person-centered way about what's really happening for young people. You know, what's, what is their internal experience? What is causing distress? And so much of that has pointed towards systemic issues with education. So our work really focuses on amplifying students' voices and developing a research base that documents the details of what's really happening for them. So yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure to join. Great, thank you. Deborah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Deborah. I'm 19 years old and I work for an organisation called Football Beyond Borders um, who use the power of football to engage, disengage young people at school. Um, but what we're really passionate about is making sure, like B said, making sure that schools become trauma-informed and that they understand and they start realizing that young people are facing barriers to accessing school and the reason why I really wanted to be a part of this call was because yeah myself I actually did experience um low attendance due to my mental health um yeah I was diagnosed with depression and PTSD due to adverse trauma that happened inside my house which then it like yeah then had a 
impact on my education and my willingness to leave the house and actually engage in my learning. Um, unfortunately, it did come with a bit of a struggle. Like I didn't get any plans. It was kind of just like, yeah, you're either in school or you're not in school. Um, so yeah, that's why I wanted to be a part of this call. Great, thank you, thank you. We'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure, uh, later on. Fran. Hi, I'm Fran. I'm here from Hove near Brighton in England. Um, and I work with Ellie. Uh, we run a, an organisation called Square Peg, which is about effecting change for all the children that face barriers to attendance, which includes children who are excluded and therefore not attending. Um, and what we're just seeing so many more square pegs in this system, which has become very rigid and academic. Um, I'm also a parent with lived experience because my own daughter, who is now 22, um, was unable to attend in primary and then for the whole of secondary school, but has now finished a degree. Yay! <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Will? Hi, my name is Will. Um, I'm a student at the University of California, Berkeley, a PhD student there that I started last September. Before that, I was a student at Bristol. Uh, and I'm a kind of a Fulbright scholar focusing on like neurodivergence, the intersection with race, class, um, foster youth and poverty. Um, and yeah, I'm from South London. I'm currently here. But just last week, I was in California. And this is a view from my house, basically. Um, wow. So this is the Berkeley campus and the Golden Gate just behind. So, yeah. Great. And, and why is it that you wanted to, to join this call today? Because I think I want to speak about, I think the intersection of, I mean, just what I found quite interesting was um, like Hades comment, just noticing how different different people's experience can be in the similar situations and noticing the importance of expertise or familiarity of the system, the importance of being able to advocate for yourself or having the funds for someone to advocate for you in the offset important of understanding what it's like to be neurodiverse and raise kids that intersection or to me come from like foster youth uh, backgrounds or young caring backgrounds so really understanding that not just the child but the child at the intersection of the parents in such disability in such race class poverty and obviously austerity and really kind of get to grips with um kind of the horror of what lockdown's been for a lot of kind of young carers or foster youth you know, when we think of unregulated care homes in the UK run by GFORS and security companies, when we think of what's happening in PRUs, um, so really kind of bringing that experience um, of, a, of a kind of underserved and underrepresented area of, of, of South East London. Yeah. When, when, you, when you mentioned about PRUs, so you're talking about people, yeah. ref, people referral yeah, units. Yeah, people referral so people referral units so it's quite interesting i'll explain to you the cycle of what often goes on and where i was at risk of going many a time particularly in south london after the blair years or during the blair years you had a lot of investment in education so a lot of the schools in south london became some of the best schools in the country in terms of people progress and results but what you happened then is a slight dip just before the Tory government of a lot of those schools where they went down from outstanding to good or good to uh, satisfactory. And a lot of those schools got taken over by an academy chain called Harris or Oasis. And Harris and Oasis, if you haven't heard of them, they're notoriously strict, very, very strict, very authoritarian, very rigid in their frames. And they have very rigid behavioural patterns. So, for instance, in my local Harris in East Dulwich and Harris Peckham, if you disrupt a lesson more than three times, you're at risk of suspension. More than that, you're at risk of exclusion. 
So if you can imagine, if you've got SE and if you've got ADHD, if you've got autism, if you've got dyslexia, all may have been undiagnosed at this point because of the reduction of women being diagnosed, but also minorities being diagnosed. You then go to school, you then get undiagnosed, you then have behavioral problems. School then just suspends you, school then excludes you. And in Southwark, where you'd be sent as a pupil referral unit, which is meant to be a hub of resources to help, help kids you know, through their transitions, what they're actually is they're actually um, gang hot beds. So what very happens is gangs and, uh, you know, uh, country lines gangs just hang outside the PRUs, recruit people, people get in the bad crew, they end up and then go young offenders. And then it's a cycle between SEN to being at school excluded to going to a people referral unit to going to a young offenders institution. And in London, very often, um, once they're excluded from school, people are just hanging out on the streets and it's through the streets so they can get groomed. And people don't talk about it the same way, but I mean, it's the way I see grooming, it, it, you know, you could go into, you could be groomed by gangs, you could be groomed into sex trafficking, you could be groomed into extremism. All of these things start with vulnerable children who are often at the back end of institutions, the back end of societies, and get groomed. So just to uh, share with you, briefly with some of my friends, um, when I was 11, age 10 or 11, I absolutely hated school, particularly because I couldn't understand why the teachers had authority over me. Because at home, I was the young care for my mum. So I was in authority. So I was like, and they, the one thing I remember hating was they used to say, I'm the adult, you're the child, therefore I'm right and you're wrong. And I always say, but that doesn't make sense because at home, like, being, being an adult means nothing. Like, I'm, I'm probably more of an adult than some adults. And so there was like this behavioral problems that were not so much me being outburst, but me actually challenging their authority. And I was at risk of exclusion then. And they would have sent me to a local PRU. And then I got sent, um, instead of getting actual diagnosis of a dyslexia or autism, I was actually sent to a um, called Sunshine House. I absolutely hated it. It was a, meant to be art therapy, but it was basically why not to join a gang or how not to go to prison. And it was 15 boys, all black Caribbean, primarily black Jamaican, not even African, black Caribbean in, in this part of Peckham, which is unusual because Peckham's black African, um, kind of Brixton. But anyway, so it's sent there. And on Facebook, I looked at them up the last two months. Two have been killed, four are in prison, the rest have got no GCSEs. And the only one who got GCSEs, the only one who got A-levels, the only one who got to university. Uh, I was actually in school where one of them got in trouble for stabbed and another person got stabbed to death while I was in school. So it's it's a it's a hotbed. And I remember the way they used to the way they used to treat you. And my I think one of the memories I have of school, particularly one of the most foundational memories, was pickup time. In primary school so i went to school in east dulwich which was a very white very leafy middle middle class area and so at pickup time when you had all of the kind of really posh mums come to pick up their kids if you had a mum who looked a bit scruffy or with working class or came from a cleaning job or similar uniform she instantly got looked down upon almost as if she was dirt almost as if she didn't do anything they're not going to talk to her so all the other mums and dads were in a circle speaking they're all the working class kids or black parents they're all kind of excluded from those things and I remember the way they used to look at me, those middle-class parents, and it was as if that their children were going to make lawyers, doctors, engineers. And my one role in education was not to mess it up for them. So I went through all of my education thinking my one role was simply not to be naughty because being naughty would ruin it for the kids who deserve an education. So I think that's the kind of perspective that I come through, come through a kind of state-educated, because of the kind of privileged area. There was a real sense of entitlement so there was a, a lot of kids who probably could have gone to private school but went to state school instead. So that there's a that's the kind of atmosphere around this is around this is located. And my particular circumstance, I grew up as a, a carer from a young mum who has um, 
uh, autism and bipolar. Um, and so that was the kind of challenge. And I think to get the school to recognize that, like, oh, you were late to school this day. Oh, you didn't have to come to school that day. To recognize it was down to that rather than being truant or naughty was a real challenge. Um, so I think, and, and I think I was particularly uh, challenged because I started school 2009. Uh, same year, you know, kind of Tories came in, you had austerity. So I came to school exactly the point where all the services were being cut. And one thing I'd really like to go out, because I have to go fairly soon. One thing I'd really like to say is that what I think we need to center and recognize, particularly in London urban areas, is the negative effect that academy chains are having on local schools, where you have big academy chains take over community-run schools, run them like prisons or businesses, and effectively drive out people who are square pigs, drive out people with behavioral problems, mental health problems, SEM problems. And one thing that many people know about the academy chains is one of the, so when they first got um, uh, transferred over, they actually got a bit more money from the government rather than get the council. And the reason was, is the government took the money away from funding of educational psychologists and mental health services within the council. So it meant that schools then had to fund their own educational psychologists and their own mental health workers rather than getting them from the council. So because I went to school at that moment of transition, my school was like, well, we can't afford educational psychologists. We can't afford mental health workers. And so whereas if I'd been a year older and benefited from a council-run scheme, I could no longer do that. And I think my particular experience of being like autistic and dyslexic and not sporty or musical in any stretch of the word meant that if I was sporty or good at football or good at music or good at guitar, like some of my dyslexic autistic friends were, it's like, oh, my God, that explains it. You know what I mean? He has a talent. Oh, we may be bad at school, but he's really good at piano. Or he may be bad at school, but he's really good at football, really good at basketball, really good at whatever the sport or musical or, or like maths or something. He's, he's bad at this, but he's so good at this. And there I was saying, actually, I think I kind of want to be an academic, but I couldn't read or I couldn't write. And because they didn't immediately connect my, fa my failures, my perceived failures with this talent, it meant that I was kind of no one and nothing. And I kind of went through all of education. I was in the lowest set for every class uh, until the age of 16. And the, the right the lowest sets, so I was in my class. Most of them are joined gangs now. Um, and those are the people. So it meant that when I graduated uh, A-levels, I ended up getting the highest A-levels the school's ever seen. And so when I took the photos of all the other people, like, I didn't know any of them. They weren't my friends. My friends were the people who left school at 16, the people who joined a gang. They weren't my friends. They were the people I talked to. So I think that to understand mental health is to understand austerity. To understand austerity in Britain is to understand misogyny, racism, unfortunately, the decline of a lot of urban areas is to undercline foster youth and young carers. It's designed to understand the transfer from disability benefits to PIP that I know hit many families very, very, very hard, very hard. It's to understand what particularly women go through if they transfer out of an abusive relationship onto universal credit and have to wait five weeks for first payment. To understand council houses that haven't been updated, renovated, and council estates that are gang-ridden and not developed at all. Um, and so that's just my kind of brief overview. But I'm really looking forward um, to kind of hearing back from, from kind of what we say. But I think that my, my feedback or offers for guidance would be to kind of to try to center it on young people's lived experience, but try to understand the differences between 
urban areas and rural areas, because I speak about urban areas, but if you're in a rural area and you've got no services around you, no big hospital, no big research centers, you could be even more, you know, hard, hard done by. So I, I, I really welcome this conversation. And I think it comes at a really important time. The reason why I think it does is that there's been a lot of talk of mental health of late. And I've welcomed that. But I haven't seen that come with funding. In other ways, my cousin's still waiting upwards of two years for a, for a diagnosis and a mental health in camps. My aunt's waiting. I think she's waited three years for therapy. All of these things. So whilst we're talking about mental health, we need to be aware that there may be gains in the arena of discourse. In other words, there may be gains in the way we talk about it, but there have certainly been no gains in actually funding mental health workers. My local hospital, the Morsley Hospital, is the biggest mental health hospital in the world but there's no beds available and there's a three-year waiting list of therapy. Yeah, you were, you were talking about this earlier, Ellie, as well, weren't mm. you? Um, so so I know that we're only halfway through the introductions, but I wanted to give Will some time to speak because I know that you have to leave shortly. Have you got a few more minutes, Will? Yeah, I've got a few more minutes. I've got a few more okay. minutes. I, I, I have to leave by 25 past, if possible. Okay, okay, that's fine. So we'll finish off the introductions in a while, but as you've just sort of given such an incredible opening statement, is any, would anybody like to, to respond to, to any of the points that Will was raising there? This is something, just could, could you pick that up maybe, Ellie, because that's something that you were talking about earlier about the lack of provision for, for young people. Yeah, I mean, um, we talk a lot, as Square Peg, about this, that you can't really talk about education unless you're looking at the services around education, and in particular, that is social care and mental health care, are the most valuable services that families should be able to access because they are the most fundamental important services in order to stop escalating crisis and yet they're the most um, undervalued underfunded uh, they lack any kind of priority uh, uh, and um, parity actually within the halls of power um, so um, yeah I mean it, we, we we link in with a a parent who's also a camp psychiatrist, and she's told us that there are absolutely no tier four beds in the whole of the country for any children or young people who need them. Um, and obviously, you know, tier four is the last place that anybody of whatever age wants to end up. However, if you need it, you need it. There's no getting away from it. Um, so for me, that is the, the biggest, you know, if you look at the the issues of, of what the system of education is, doing to young people's mental health and to the workforce and the pressure that it applies to parents, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at this pressure cooker around um, how that impacts mental health and then leads to mental illness, and then there is no help. Um, I work strategically around commissioning cycles here, and I'm really starting to unpick and understand exactly the decisions that are made when a service is set up. And the conversations that are had, unless there are those who are care experienced or, or with lived experience at the table to challenge and ensure that the, 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 the memorandum of understanding, the fundamental basis on which that service should be running and the criteria that is set and why and how that is funded, unless that is properly woven in with those with lived experience at the table equitably on a steering govern, you know, on a governance level, not operational, although that's important or review, but governance, 
we're not going to fix we're not going to fix the problems so it's about bringing those voices absolutely to the center of everything that that is changed going forward or reviewed yeah thank you do you want to come in there lottie yeah thanks james um i completely agree with what you said ellie about um having young people properly represented and i was thinking back to a time <clears throat> excuse me pretty recently whilst i was on a call um with some local councillors in my area with my head of sick form and a few other students <clears throat> and the call was about um the transfer of care of when a young person who's maybe been with cams moves forward to adult mental health um and the way there's so many issues with that because adult mental health is looking at age 18 to 100 right so they have so many people they're trying to deal with and help at once that getting help is almost impossible so the people in the room um on this call were incredible had had lived experience and then i was there as someone who has unfortunately had many friends go through this but has because of lack of funding and whatever been the person who's been talking them out of really horrible situations which i won't go into at age 11 12 um, and this has been the norm for me and it's been the norm for a lot of my friends um but what was so harrowing wasn't what people were saying it was the reaction we were getting back which was shock and we were like this has been our lives since we've been able to remember it and you're shocked by this and um, so it is important that we have young people who've had lived experience or experience around it at the table because we have too many people who still haven't got a clue what's going on and think the system is working and is fit for purpose when it, it isn't at all yeah, thank you. Heidi? Just, just to go back to what William was saying and just to kind of kind of build on and agree with what Lottie was saying, I think one of the biggest problems within the system and the conversations is that we're not recognising those intersections for young people and their families. Um, and that is why we're not getting people at those tables. So, for example, as William was saying, you know, as a, you know, from my own experience, I'm a cisgendered white woman, but my child is trans. Um, and they're autistic, and as am I, and um, both of us have had and do have mental health challenges around the fact that being autistic is hard in a in a world where it's not built for autistic people, um, and the layering of that. But for us as a family, you know, I'm a single parent family. We we at the time and you know for several years have been reliant on benefits because I haven't been able to work because I have had caring responsibilities with my son, um, and not to the same level I expect as someone who is a person of colour, but we were siloed because of those demographics, because we were a single parent family, because we were a low income family, because I was a disabled adult, because my son was trans. Um, all of those things were reasons why, of course, he wouldn't be doing so well in the education system. And, you know, he's the exception, he's not the rule. Um, and I think that that is a massive piece of the conversation, that there's a lot of that you know, right down to, as, as William was saying, right down to the way that you're looked at in the schoolyard, but up to, you know, I sat on a board of governors for a total of six months and I had to resign because I couldn't handle the conversations that were being had at that level about children like my child. It was just too damaging to me to be in that room. Um, but it's systemic and it's at every level. And what it comes down to is prejudice and, like William was saying, misogyny and ableism and sexism and transphobia and racism, you know, and it's so heavily embedded in our systems that the voices of young people are not being heard, and especially the voices of young people from underrepresented groups 
And that is, you know, across the system, that's what we've got to tackle. Otherwise, nothing will change. And no amount of saying we would like to hear the voices of young people will make any difference to the fact that, you know, as William was saying in his situation, the opportunities for those voices to be heard are not there because they're written off or they're dead. You know, and that's and I know that's extreme, but that's the truth. You know, our children are dying because the system is failing them so terribly and it's horrific. And so those kids are not being heard because their voices just don't they don't exist. They're invisible. So, yeah, I just wanted to thank him for saying that because it's so important, William, to hear that said. And thank you. I really appreciate that input. Oh, thanks. So I just wanted to as well. I mean, it's a it's a hard point to 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 go back to and, and to bring up to trigger warnings but there, there was i think about three or four weeks ago um there was a 13 year old boy who jumped off the tower of london uh, tower bridge you may have seen the story in bbc news and i was interested because it got some recognition in london but it didn't make national news and i thought that was so telling the fact that a 13 year old could Obviously, I don't know what he was going through, but go through something so devastating that he was more willing to jump over the bridge and that not make national news. I thought that was, to me, that that devastated me just as much because it showed, you know, after Black Lives Matter, after all these things, that his life, you know, didn't necessarily matter to us as a country in that way that somehow, over some time, we become normalised to children's mental health difficulties and children's isolation and suffering and normalized principally to being comfortable with the fact that we have got kids struggling self-harming, comfortable with the fact that we've got no mental health beds. It's not so much, it's more than we don't care, it's that we've actually accepted it as normal. And I think in terms of unraveling, we've got to unravel, it's not only that people not care, it's unraveling that people are quietly going like, hmm, yeah. In other words, it's not my kid. It's not my family that's being affected. And it's that that I think we have to disrupt. It's about, we've been speaking about this with a friend and Ellie, we've been speaking about this a lot. Of course, we need to send to send kids, people with emotional and mental health degrees, but we need to somehow connect that to equal opportunity for all children. Because I think that for a lot of people, when we talk about send kids because of mental health, if their kids not send or hasn't got mental health issues, they just disconnect and disengage. They go, well, it's not my problem, or I don't have to deal with that, or, you know, gang violence. Oh, no, we don't live in that kind of area where gang violence, or we don't live in this kind of area with, with extremism or this kind of thing. And it makes people think that they can somehow get away from the fact, when, as we all know, with the kids and young people, anything, you know, disability is the largest minority in the world and is the only minority where at any one time a person can join at any moment in their life in terms of accident, in terms of trauma, in terms of mental health. And so it's actually informing people that, okay, you may be comfortable now with all of this, but what if your child has a traumatic experience? What if your child develops anxiety due to exam stress? What if your child develops depression? All of these things can happen very quickly and a very comfortable family can become very uncomfortable in a very quick amount of time. And just before I go, I want to uh, just mention two other things. One of my friends has just joined a political consultancy uh, firm and they were recently doing stats for um, the YMCA and they were doing about homelessness. And they asked people, do you support extra funding for homelessness, homeless shelters for young people? 80% of people said no, said no. But then they asked them, do you support more funding to deal with the affordability crisis of housing? 
and 80 percent of people said yes why because everyone could connect to affordability and housing but not everyone could connect to homelessness and youth and i think in terms of us we need to be very strategic in our discourse that same way in other words we can still talk about children and young people and send but if we try to bring it up to the wider level about how this affects all children and young people and opportunity for all young people, then we can maybe get more people into this conversation. But we need to realize that not everyone, and Devon and Cornwall, there's a new story last week, in Devon and Cornwall Police, they have no mental health facilities for kids, so they're having to hold kids with mental health difficulties overnight in police cells. And I'm sure it happens in other counties, and they just don't speak about it, but Devon and Cornwall, the actual uh, commissioner of Devon and Cornwall Police spoke against it and said he was horrified by it. So I think in terms of mental health, it's a very difficult thing. And I think people are ready to talk about maybe low-level anxiety, depression. But when it comes to PTSD or high-level anxiety or suicide or psychosis, it becomes very difficult because often those scenes is very violent or distressing or troubling. And I think I'd, I'd, I'd really, I have to go now, but I think I'd really love it. Maybe we don't go on the more you know traumatic side of things, but if we can if we feel comfortable enough to speak about the ugly side of mental health too, because I think we should really recognize that it's not all, you know, we can speak about it and be positive about it, but a lot of times you have very, very shit days, to be frank, very, very shit days, awful days that you'd rather forget and rather many times I've wanted to bury myself in a hole and say, right, I'm hiding from the world right now. And we've got to feel well enough to be able to say, yes, that was a bad day, bad experience but we can be positive in the sense that we can actually help others. Uh, and so I just wanted to kind of feed all that and say that although I may be underrepresented, I did have the privilege of, of kind of dealing with the police and dealing with the services in London. And um, yeah, I think that's something we need to recognize. Sometimes calling 999 is the only option for people and we can't, um, you know, look down on people who do that. But anyway, it's been a real privilege speaking to you. Um, and I'm so sorry, but I've got to go because my cousin Carter um, is actually really cool. He's got duplicated chromosomes, but it means he's the only person in the world with these duplicated chromosomes. No one's been born with it ever. Um, and he's part of the special project. I think it's part of Oxford University. I can't remember, but it's called the special project in it, like genome sequences people. But anyway, he was at school and he found a pearl necklace and he put one of the pearls in his ear. <laughs> so he's nonverbal as well. So he couldn't tell us he did that, but the teacher managed to spot him. So they took him to St. Thomas's Hospital and he saw, you know, Dr. Raj? You know, he's on Strictly Come Dancing and he's on BBC, but he was a doctor and they realized it. So he's got to have an operation tomorrow of general anesthetic because he's got to have um, uh, have his thing out. So I got to go look after him as he's running about. But um, yeah, that's just a whole other thing. But yeah, that's where I'm going. But yeah, and it was Chromosome Awareness Day three days ago. It was, it was International um, uh, People Dancing Awareness Day three days ago. So I'll leave you with the spirit of, of, uh, of that. But thank you very wow. much. And it's been a pleasure. And I'm so grateful that these conversations are happening. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for joining us, Will. It's been it's been great to it's great to to connect with you. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope that your uh, cousin's pearl removal <laughs> goes okay. <laughs> he doesn't want it removed. That's the thing. That's all oh, right. <laughs> he likes it being in there. He doesn't want it removed. But um, yeah, thanks. Thanks so it much. It sounds almost like a fairy tale. The boy, yeah, the boy with a pearl uh, in his honestly, ear. Honestly. Honestly, and we're trying to think whether he knew Dr. Raj was there at the hospital because <laughs> he likes him, whether he just wanted to see the doctor, maybe that. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to joining more conversations and I will catch this uh, on the 
if someone could send me a link to the Facebook group, I'd be yeah, very much we'll, appreciative. We'll do. And I'd like to, I'd like to receive it. But thank you so much, everyone, and I uh, look forward to hearing this. But thank you so much. Take Bye. care. Okay, so um, I know you've been waiting very patiently to come in, Deborah. But should we finish off the introductions, <laughs> and then and then we'll pick it up there? So should we go to you, Ellie? Um, um, can you explain a little bit about your yourself and and um, and where you are joining us from, um, and why you wanted to join this conversation? Yes. So um, I'm Ellie. First and foremost, um, I'm a middle-aged white woman. <laughs> I'm also mum to two kids who, frankly, just yeah, got massively, the worst of luck. massively impacted by um, the current education system due to underlying needs that were undiagnosed, unsupported. And like Will, we entered the uh, primary education system just as the coalition came in. So we experienced the GOVE reforms and, and a lot of changes at a local level. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we came up close and personal with school attendance difficulties, uh, mental health myself, um, as a result of um, uh, just the failings of the system, the stress of trying to navigate the system. It's been an absolute awakening for me to get up close and personal with the knowledge and the facts that actually the systems are broken and that has totally fundamentally um uh it, not only has it been an awakening and an enlightenment but it was also a complete um rocked my world in a way that drove me into a complete crisis um that truth that knowledge that experience and then i have two kids uh both of whom um have anxiety um, and developed anxiety, uh, potentially with, with underlying needs there that would have meant that they ended up with anxiety anyway, but certainly entering the system, um, which wasn't attachment-focused or trauma-informed, um, and didn't have the resources to support them in a timely or agile way, or even the professionals having the same understanding that we did, or fundamentally, um, meant that they were deeply um, impacted. And this is my daughter, Liddy, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Liddy. I'm 12 years old. Um, I went through uh, primary for a lot of the time, but I missed uh, a couple, like, couple years of school. I've been out of it for quite a long time now. Fingers crossed I get back in. Um, but I got bullied for seven years since I kind of first joined the school and it just kind of rocked my life the other way. I had operations uh, really young, which also kind of traumatized me for like needles and things like that. So I've I had a pretty tough young life and kid middle-aged whatever life, <laughs> but it was horrible and hard, but I really want schools to change and to, to, because they tried to help, but they just, they only made it worse. They didn't really care. There was one who cared, but she still couldn't do much because they were all kind of idiots. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was able to stand up to the bullies, luckily, for like one of my last days. And that was probably the strongest I've ever felt. Didn't go exactly how it went in my head, but I just really want schools to change and to do better. But I don't think some people really don't want it to change. They want it to stay the same. They want to have 
they want to stay in the power that they are. They want the like the bullies. They want to pick up the little kids to feel the more power. And the teachers can make themselves feel more powerful, knowing that they have the more command. And all I really want is um, a better environment to grow up in. People say that children, they they shouldn't listen to them. They shouldn't. They don't do the right thing. But actually, the majority of kids. All they want is a better world to grow up in. No racism, no sexism, no wars, no um, uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Poverty. But, yeah, that's it. Um, they want uh, a good ecosystem. I I'm very on it about the environment. I really want a good world to grow up in because I love animals and nature so yeah so i just wish that people would listen to kids more because their voices are really important and yeah absolutely well that's coming across loud and clear liddy but when you when you say that you want schools to change is it is it in particular in response to how they respond to to bullying like the, the experience that you went through or are there other ways in which you would like to see schools different well, I would like them all to have a, um, I, I would love if this actually existed, but I would love it if they could all have like, um, in some cool schools, they have this place where people who have like um, autism or anxiety, all the, dis which I hate the word dis disabilities, because it's just saying, oh, this person's a disability in their brain. Their brain is wrong. It's not, it's just wired differently. Um, if you don't know what anxiety is, it makes all your fears 10 times worse than they are. Like I have such big arachnophobia. It's insane. I scream for help when I see a spider. <laughs> so but, talk um, about the place in the school. The schools, I would love it if they have uh, an area where people who are struggling uh, to go to. Um, so then they have like teachers who are trained to help these people in different ways than usual, because I find it personally to really hard to go into big noisy classes or um, to make new friends. I'm really nervous about that. I've had to change schools three times now and every school I wish one of them did have like an area like that but I wish that every single one had an area like that to help all those kids who are really struggling and who are really scared and nervous and who are just who just feel like they want to die at times it's horrible and horrible and they want to run away I just I wish that schools had things like that to help the people that need the help but they don't but I would love it if that could exist I hope that answered the question I'm kind of ramble on yeah it really did thank you and somebody just wrote on facebook beautifully spoken and it really it really was thank you for that um anna hi um i kind of feel i just want to give liddy more time because i'm here as a parent um, um yeah, my 11 year old son um has uh, similar to liddy um experienced attendance barriers um due to anxiety but my key message was listen to the children. Just listen to them and properly hear them. Um, as you can tell, I'm quite emotional about this myself. Um, so this has affected our whole family. Um, I feel like three years ago, sort of looking back with hindsight, that's when it, I first noticed our son was, was um, losing his mojo let's say, um, and then th 
things sort of spiraled downwards um, and he hit crisis probably about 18 months ago when he was going into year five. Um, I think there's like, it's multifactorial, his kind of descent into crisis. Um, difficult to unpick like one specific thing. I actually think for him, bullying wasn't an issue, maybe just a smidge at the start of year three. Yeah, there, there's a lot to it and um, quite complex. Um, but yeah, so by September 2019, he was experiencing panic attacks at the prospect of going into school. Um, so yeah, on a school morning, he would literally wake up, open his eyes. If he realized it was a school morning, he would just go into hyperventilation, retching at the prospect of it. And what it boiled down to was um, a fear of feeling or being sick when at school and not being allowed to leave the classroom, let alone the school. Um, and that's what it sort of boiled down to, this level of anxiety, panic about it. Um, so this wasn't recognised at all by the school. As per the um, Facebook group, which you can get an enormous amount of support from not fine in school, the school was saying, he's absolutely fine in school. So they were not seeing the struggle at home. Um, and, you know, the pressure to just keep forcing him in, keep forcing him in, regardless, was just unbelievable. And, you know, what Will said about going so swiftly from being a comfortable family to uncomfortable. It was just unreal. Um, that you're in a, you're in a spin, like you're like, what, what is happening here? And so you just succumb as parents to the pressure from the school. They're the authority, you know? <laughs> um, and everyone's got their own relationship with their own schooling, haven't they? And, you know, I was a very conformist child, you know, rule bound. And you know, this is the head teacher of the school that I went to as a child um, saying, you know, you've just got to get him in. The attendance and, um, yeah, the focus on attendance. I do understand the pressures the school are under and where that comes from. But it's it took... It took some time too long um, to recognise that 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 needed to be challenged, and that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. Like so damaging, and this is the the ex lived experience of so many in the not finding school um, group. That yeah, you just you just can't just keep forcing your child in. It's so damaging. Um, so. By the time I realised what was happening, yeah, I did realise what was happening and what needed to then happen was we just take all pressures off, all pressures off, um, which meant standing up to the school, to the system. And, you know, fortunately, I'm... You know, I, I work for the NHS. I'm a healthcare professional. I've got a lot of experience of advocating for um, others. And I'd stand up for things when I realise what an issue is. 
I stand up for it, you know. So I was in a place to do that once I'd caught up with what was going on. Um, but even having said that, I consider myself a really strong person. Um, really the, yeah, the effect on my mental health now, the effect on the mental health of the whole family, not just our son, who, you know, at his lowest was talking about suicide. It was that bad that he was so low. Um, I feel like he's coming out of crisis. He was probably in crisis for about a year. Back in the autumn term, he was attending school about 40 something percent of the time. So, you know, we're getting the, the, um, the concern from school about the, the low attendance. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that, but um, yeah, so, so full on crisis to the extent that I realized I needed to step away from my own work, my career, to be full-time mum and advocate for my son. And actually I could start to see the effects on my our daughter as well. I was like, I, I just need to drop absolutely anything else that I can. Fortunately, I'm in a position to take this year. So I've been off work um from January and yeah you know, I've got a year my son is due to go to secondary school in September um I absolutely understand that <laughs> the vast majority of people would not be in a position to be able to do that and I do consider myself very fortunate I have I really just don't even want to go there with where we'd be at as a family if I wasn't able to dedicate myself to this um, but yeah, so that's where we're at. I feel like our son was in crisis. He's in recovery, has been in recovery for the last six months. He's doing well, um, kind of zigzag recovery. But yeah, we've got this looming transition to secondary coming up. I, I feel I, I burnt out before I could manage to step away from work. So I've been really trying to focus on my own self-care and build my own strength to continue the, the fight um, to get my son um, what he needs. But it's, yeah, absolutely everything that everyone said so far um, is our lived experience. And I see so many other families struggling, children and their families. And so I'm here sort of representing them as, as much as my son and our family um it, it's just so damaging that the, the schools the education system will not recognize the mental health issues of the system um that it, it just is so ableist particularly in our area the, the particular school is very high achieving um you know, prides itself as being the best school um, in terms of attendance and uh, academic achievement. Um, and you just feel, I feel so sort of alone and in this parallel invisible universe, um, having had my eyes opened to all the flaws of it. And um, a friend of mine, who him, himself had a really horrible education, um, 
with hindsight experienced anxiety and depression from a child. Um, he says that even the children that appear to be not exactly enjoying, I mean, like, how many adults do you know that actually say they enjoyed school? Um, he says that even if a child seems to have got through the system, there is damage there and it will come out at some point. If they're just the ones that are hitting crisis that you have to fight to get it recognised, but, you know, they've hit crisis. But there's so many that don't quite get to crisis that are just under the radar and they're surviving just about. But, you know, what, what damage has that done to them? And they emerge as adults just, yeah, just having survived. <laughs> and... Yeah. yeah. So I feel like my son, I think in time he will be able to articulate more his own experience. And Liddy, that was just brilliantly articulated. And it's so good that you are speaking up for yourself and for other children. It's absolutely what needs to happen. Um, I hope that my son can do the same in due course and, you know, advocate for others and raise awareness in the same way. Because um, it is truly shocking how the experience that you children are are having at school. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's such a powerful, moving story that you shared there, um, and it's great to hear that your son is starting to feel better, having gone through such a long, long period of time. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, um, there's a couple more introductions that we still have to do, and then we'll we'll open this up into a wider discussion. Um, can we go to Heidi? Hi. Has Deborah done her introduction yet? Because if she hasn't, oh, she has. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, yeah, my name is Heidi. Uh, I live in Wakefield in West Yorkshire in the UK. Um, I have a 16-year-old son who had uh, significant difficulties in school, uh, which became apparent that he was autistic, which then meant that it became apparent that I was too. So we had quite a lot to pick, unpick during the process. Um, and like I can, I can totally relate to some of a lot of what Anna said. Um, he was in significant crisis, as was I. Um, you know, personal experience of it was that it got so bad for us as a family. I had experienced poor mental health previously. I make no secret of that. I've worked in the field of mental health advocacy and um, kind of public speaking for some time. Um, but to the point that I found myself in a doctor's surgery. 18 months ago, telling the doctor that if they didn't do something, I was really worried that I was going to go home and kill myself and my child. So um, it got really bad, really bad. Um, and I think it isn't something we speak about because there's so much shame and stigma around it. But the work that I do now, um, thankfully, we we had really good support. And, you know, I, I know myself fairly well and I know my way around mental health fairly well. And that really did kind of give us some scaffolding. Um, but I made the decision that to prioritise my child's mental health over his education and I actually pulled him from school. I didn't deregister, but I did, you know, I put my foot down in school, we're told in no uncertain terms that he would not be coming back. It was a big academy. And I was told he was fine in school. And um, because basically he wasn't throwing chairs and setting off fire alarms. Um, so he wasn't a disruption to the learning of others, but he was just so unwell. But the work that I do now um, during that process, we secured an EHCP, Education Healthcare Plan, for him. And um, on the back of that, um, because we were able to, or it came became apparent that no setting could meet his needs, 
um, he now has an education otherwise than at school package, so an EOTAS package, which if you're in that field, you might have heard spoken about. But the work I do now is around supporting families who have got to that stage in the system where perhaps they've been all the way through trying to secure an HCP, which is not just for children with SEN. Um, you know, it's for, it, it can be based on health needs as well as, you know, kind of like um, people think, I think people think SEN is about intellectual disability and it isn't. Um, so I support families who have gone through the EHCP system and have found that there is not a setting suitable for them and, and helping them to get a setting for their children that is usually educational otherwise than at school. So my son's package now is um, he has got some tutors. Um, he, he had a really good experience in a PRU, actually. We, were, we fought like mad to get him into a social, emotional, mental health PRU, which saved him, I think. We were just really lucky. Um, it's an invisible provision that I heard of through the jungle drums, <laughs> through the grapevine. Um, and, um, you know, for a long time, I was told it didn't exist. And then I actually went to the building and spoke to the center and said, you do exist, don't you? He was like, yeah, how do I get my kid in here? <laughs> so, um, and it's been the saving of him. But um, his EOTAS package includes some tutoring, but more significantly, it includes, you know, um, climbing lessons and... Um, art lessons or art classes and um, having someone help him with things like learning how to use public transport and a mentor for his, an identity mentor because he's trans. Um, and I think that that approach to education is a, is a much more sophisticated and necessary approach. But the difficulty that a lot of my families have is that by the time they land with me, they are on their knees um, and they have had all the fight knocked out of them. And a lot of the work that I do is around just saying to parents, come on, we're nearly there. You can do this. Um, and it's horrific. The impact that this that, that um, barriers to attendance have on families have a ho as a whole. I see parents who give up work, who have to stop work. I see parents who develop health conditions themselves, who have mental health crises themselves. And the, and, and the reason I'm saying all of this is that I'm starting my master's in September. I'm going to Sheffield to do my master's in autism studies. And I'm hoping that my area will be around actually being able to quantify the financial cost that this is having on the economy at large, the financial cost of the public purse that actually us failing our children and our young people like this is having. Because I think until we can, I know there is some work in this field already, but until we can actually it's how we money talks. It's how we'll make a change. Is being able being able to say to people, look, this this is a you know here's an algorithm. Put these numbers into this figure into this algorithm, and let's see what it kicks out the other end. Because I know it's certainly in our case, the cost to the public purse for for supporting us as a family and me not being able to, for example, pay taxes because I'm not be able to work is significant. And I know that we're just one of I know the most recent stats is almost a million children who are, you know, um, persistently absent from education. Um, it's huge. The cost is huge. Um, and the investment required to offset that would be a drop in the ocean by comparison. So that's my area of interest. Sorry, I've rambled. I'll stop now. Oh, I'm just no, really grateful all... to be part of this conversation. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I get the feeling, I don't know how we all fix time-wise, but I get the feeling, I mean, this this conversation is only just getting going. We're an hour in <laughs> and we're still we're still doing the introduction. Um, and it's like, if you're all happy to stay on for, for potentially up until two o'clock, say, 
Um, I don't know if anyone needs to leave, but it feels like we've got a lot, a lot further to go with this conversation. So, so let's go to Lottie, and then we'll, and then we'll open this up to a wider discussion with Deborah and then Ellie. Hi everyone, um, I'm Lottie. As James has said, I'm 18 years old and I've just finished sixth form, which is awesome. I'm from Southampton, um, and I work with a really cool organisation called People Power, which is essentially a group of young people all the way from the ages of around to 11 to early 20s. And um, we look at many aspects aspects of the education system and try and make it more democratic. And all that means is having young people get to lead, be at the front, be sat at the table, have their say. Um, and the reason I am here today is one, to represent us, because one of our main goals is improving educational funding and for mental health and several other aspects of mental health. Um, but also with lived experience myself. And I just wanted to touch upon, as I'm here, what Anna was saying earlier about you know, not being allowed to leave a classroom when someone's feeling, you know, ill or whatever. And um, that is, sounds small, but one of the things definitely we talk about because it's, there's no reason for it. It's showing children that there is a power imbalance and that they aren't allowed to do things that are, are human rights uh, per se. Um, and that is one of the things we're talking about so often because it, it may start at not being allowed to go to the toilet, but if that's something that they can, they can stop, what else? like we're allowing a lot worse to happen um so yeah that's me thank you okay deborah i know you've been waiting to come in for ages uh thank you so much for being so patient no worries um i've got a couple of things to talk about but yeah i wanted to start off with like unfortunately the story that anna painted was like all too true for me and my family um unfortunately yeah due to actually domestic violence in my household I then experienced depression and um, PTSD. And unfortunately, my mum was the bearer of all of that. And she had to become, yeah, my shoulder. And I think it was really hard for her because I was, prior to that, I was like the loud, bubbly character in school. I was known by everyone. Teachers kind of loved my energy, but... I also internally believed that I had to keep that up whilst also going through everything. So exactly like you said, Anna, unfortunately school would say that I was perfectly fine because the days that I did manage to get into school, I was coping. But the days that I didn't manage to get into school, I was literally, yeah, I don't even want to go back to that place because it was so dark. And unfortunately my mum did have to yeah, go into school being like, my daughter physically cannot get out of bed today. Like, she's not going to be coming into school. And I remember days where she would literally be on the phone and I could hear her from downstairs, like, on the phone in tears to, like, a head teacher or to the, to the safeguarding lead, being like, my daughter can't get into school and I don't know what to do. Because, unfortunately, my mum, yeah, she became a single parent. She wasn't able to leave her job because she had to maintain the household I have an older sister who like we were talking about before siblings are also missed out of this conversation and yeah like I, I can't even imagine what she was going through when I was next door in my bedroom not even coping and she had to see my mum in that position as well um and I think being involved in this conversation is also so powerful to me personally because my mum unfortunately passed away in November so being able to have this conversation now it's like I've never really been able to appreciate everything that she does and it's like listening to Anna for example being like yeah you 
unfortunately, yeah, you are also going through your own moments of mental health as well. And it's like, I haven't been able to have that conversation with my mum to even understand what experience she experienced, right? So for me to be able to come into this conversation and see all different angles of the families that are affected and the different members of a family that are infected other than just the child that's at the center. Um, But what I really wanted to talk about as well is just the perception that young people, the perception that teachers and adults have of young people in schools that are suffering. So Lydia, you spoke fantastically about having safe spaces where young people can go to, but unfortunately schools that don't have those safe spaces and young people that aren't being able to access them are being labelled as truant, are being told that they're destructive. And, yeah, it's it's unfortunate because these young people may be at crisis, but it's hidden, and their only moment of getting through that school day and making it from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock is by wandering the corridors to clear their mind. But as a teacher that isn't maybe involved in that young person's immediate circle or isn't a teacher that y- that young person is taught by, they perceive that as truancy. And I think one thing that I really learned is through the work that I do with Football Beyond Borders is, yeah, making sure that schools become trauma-informed and making sure that a lot of teachers... So when a young person comes into a crisis or a young person's struggling in school, they'll often go into a meeting room with specific teachers. They're often part of senior leadership team. And that conversation remains in that room and it remains in an email thread with a certain amount of members of staff. But that message isn't transferred to all members throughout the school. And there's one specific young boy that I work with and he's been a young carer for his mum throughout um, lockdown. And unfortunately, his mum was hospitalised. She's been in a coma for the past year and... The mum came in, she's come out of the coma, fortunately, and she came into school recently and she said, I want to speak about my son. I want to find out how he's doing in school. I want to get up to date with it. And she came in and told the teacher, who is also part of senior leadership, about what she has been going through through, through lockdown. And he was absolutely oblivious. He didn't. He wasn't aware. But yet this young man has gone through, he didn't attend any lockdown lessons, And he also comes into school maybe, especially on a Monday, quite late. And he's been put down for... He gets points every Monday because he's late. And that that goes on to his record, saying that he's consistently late. He often truants because he's just trying to clear his mind. But all teachers weren't aware of the reason behind why he was doing that. And I think something that I'm really passionate about is all behaviours have a reason. All behaviours have a start. They have a cause. And that cause needs to be identified early so that we can understand behaviours and we can start thinking about how we can help young people get through the day and how we can get young people through this education system. But lastly, I just wanted to say it's so hard because, Lydia, you're amazing for it because you're really strong and you're able to come onto this call and talk about your experience. But a lot of young people aren't willing to do that because they have been failed by the system. And how can you expect a young person to come and speak to a system that they know has failed them. And yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Can we go to Ellie and or Liddy next? 
Um, just to um, put a caveat in, Lizzie's been so brave, she almost didn't make it this morning. The anxiety was biting really hard. So completely hear you, Deborah, because so often these young people, absolutely, the anxiety is so bad and it's talking about the experience is so triggering that they're not able to and so many voices are silent because of the uh, clamp that the experience places over them and it's it's just horrendous but I'm so proud of her to be here but she wanted to share some things with you that she's written down um, yeah um so a lot at um my primary we had these things called attendance rewards where the more you go in the better your attention so there's bronze silver and gold and to the people who didn't get a reward at all it hurts them, it felt, made them feel horrible. And it kept on, they kept on doing that for my entire time there. And it was just absolutely horrible because due to my anxiety, I desperately struggled to get in. And I got like a, I don't know, just, I can't even remember, it was so horrible. Um, but they got like low scores, like, oh, you've gotten a low score, try to do better next time. And that, sympathy not really caring mean voice oh you you should do better Liddy. you're not doing good enough blah 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 continuously it was horrible and then they had these other things i had this one teacher who told me um Liddy, your writing's too small Liddy, now your writing's too big and now your writings are neat and that's horrible to say to someone who's still learning how to write i was in like year four and there was a new teacher but it was I don't know who would say that to so you, anyone. Do you want to share about and the board? Yes, I'm getting to that. Will you stop? Yeah. I know what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, it was. Just, there are so many teachers who. I, there was one who yelled at me for asking for help because he didn't explain what was happening. He didn't tell me what was going on. I I asked, "Can can you explain to me what 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 are we doing here? I don't understand." And he was like, "Liddy, I can't go to you every time." And I was like, "I was just asking for help," and it made me feel horrible. And a lot of the times, I felt sick. I felt, um, you know, I just did couldn't go in half the time. And then there were learning boards, like my mom mentioned which were the worst thing ever. They, they were probably one of the worst parts of the school other than um, attendance rewards. They, they were just so horrible. So what they did, they had, um, you know, they had a red angry face, red, like really angry, then red, then just a red angry face. Sorry, one second. Sorry, I have a bit of my throat. <laughs> and then they had, a yellow face and they had a lime green face and they had a green face and they had a super happy face and to go through all that they put like you've been naughty so we're going to put you down there you haven't been doing enough work so we're going to put you down here your work isn't good enough so we're going to put you down here even though you were trying your work you're not good enough for this and that is absolutely horrible to go through because there were so many people and my mom she actually used to help in the uh, like she, uh, you did PTA. photography, PTA, and she took pictures of like school plays and sold them and things like that. And um, for the PTA, for the PTA, yes, <laughs> not just being weird. <laughs> um, 
and she, uh, when she went into the staff room and um, she heard like all these teachers saying like, oh yes, I have this problem child in my classroom. This child, yes, they're horrible. They're very annoying. Things like that, which are all just so mean to the children. They're just struggling and they're not, they're not asking the parents. They're not thinking, what is this child going through? What is this child thinking? What are they feeling? They're not thinking about any of that. They're just thinking about themselves and what they're going through, which is just a child struggling. That's all they're going through. And that is honestly nothing. And maybe the teachers had a bad day, but I, it was like that every time my mom went into the staff room and it was absolutely awful. And it's just, it's really bad because they kept on doing this. They kept on saying, your work isn't good enough, blah, blah, blah. And I got I got a red card. So there are these things called red cards as well. And they send you to their head, the head's office. And when you get them, there are these children who are struggling, who are not who are naughty. And yes, some of them were actually naughty, like, but they're young. So they so they are still learning. Their brain, you don't get your brain fully grown until you're what, 29? 25, 25. 29 and some. <laughs> um so they they were just sitting outside uh scared I just saw like some little kids sitting outside and I always try to comfort them every time I saw them and uh, when I go in I was young and I um this is actually kind of crazy but when I was in reception um I was sitting on a chair like two chairs and it was the first time I ever I didn't want to leave school because I was comfy I propped up two little baby lion chairs I remember this very vividly in the room and I was like this just sitting on them and a boy said Liddy it's time to get up and go and I was like oh all right and then he just pulled the chair back and made me bang my head on the table or on the floor I think it was a table though because it really hurt um and, and then I punched him in the face <laughs> which I know is wrong but I, w I was young and then I got like, Liddy, you shouldn't have done that. Straight to the headmaster's office, you go. And they didn't let me explain why I did it. They didn't let me think, why has this child done this? There must have been a reason. Or because they were just thinking, all right, this child's been naughty. They're, they're mean, they're bad. It's really awful. And seeing the children again, sitting outside, they're just, they're scared to go in because they 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 feel like the, the teachers aren't listening to them. They feel... Um, not listened to they feel like that they're not heard and it's it's horrible and sorry I've kind of rammed on but I think kind of I it. think I'll just add to that it's just how powerful these experiences are and when when I was a parent taking my up so Liddy was just four years six weeks when she started school she wasn't you know she she should have done another year in in nursery uh, arguably two years um, because that was much that was the environment that many children need but anyway um, my experience when I took my youngest to onto the reception playground um, I was flooded with memories suddenly I was transported back to being six at, on the first day of walking onto the reception playground and my brain just pulled out this memory from the sounds that were there of me standing alone on the playground crying that was what my brain chose to gave me at that time it's exactly and it's so happening. powerful that these these memories are widened absolutely viscerally and then are activated so often later either consciously or unconsciously um, for us to experience and I think that in itself that that responsibility in the in the system to really try when we're not saying it has to be perfect and there are no bad days 
But when there are bad days, there is a compassionate and understanding and sympathetic, kind and tolerant listening person, someone, just one. It doesn't take the whole system. Just one is available somewhere in the system to help mitigate that because all of these microtransactions layer on stress if they are not dealt with compassionately and the system doesn't have the flex for that. Um, also, sorry, I just want to add one more thing and then I'll stop. <laughs> um, I, uh, Due to my experience of that school, I used to have nightmares every night of me trapped in the school and horrible thought but being murdered by the teachers, getting my skin peeled off, have a huge fear of dolls as well because they showed this video of a girl getting trapped in a doll and I'm just like why would you show that that is not nice because I wasn't the first person who found that really creepy um and it was just so I had nightmares every night and I had to for for months and months and months and I had to always go into my mom's bed and I just slept there then I woke up and I could never get enough sleep I always went to, I always was awake for like two hours a night after I went to bed and it was just awful. And yeah, sorry, that's all I wanted to say. Wow, yeah, thank you. There's so, like you say, there's such a lot of richness there in these in these micro micro stories that, that build up and up. Um, let's go to Lottie and then B. Eddie, you're awesome, by the way. Uh, Liddy, sorry, <laughs> I literally want to be your best friend. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned attendance. I'm so glad someone has because I really wanted to bring that up anyway. Um, it is completely ableist and the rewards of it need to go. Um, but I had a very similar experience to you with attendance rewards. And when I joined secondary school, I again had the worst luck in the world. I'd got a chest infection the first week, which they at the time thought was something a lot more serious. And my granddad had died two days in to my year seven. So I was not having a good time, to say the least. Um, and my attendance was rubbish, obviously, because I was physically sick and mentally not doing great either. Um, and I remember a few weeks in, I was handed this massive red card and it said, no, you're on attendance report. You have to give this to your teacher and I have to sign it off at the end of every lesson to check that you're here. Um, and at the end of it, if you do it all, you get a reward. Um, it wasn't a big reward. And if you don't, you um, your parents will be called in for a meeting. And I read that thinking, hang on a minute, this doesn't take into account anything that I've gone through over the last two weeks. And the fact that I'd had a very, very comfortable childhood up until then. So this was a massive shock for me. Um, and luckily, I was in a position with amazing parents who had the ability to call in and deal with this and say, what the hell is going on? Um, but I knew so many other children and young people in that same position who didn't have parents who would be able to call in, didn't have the, under, um, the understanding of, you know, the language schools use, um, and it became really isolating for them. Um, so with that personal experience, I have always hated it, like, since then. Um, and it just needs to go, because honestly, sometimes having amazing attendance, which I'd had at times of trauma throughout my secondary school life, actually showed how bad I was doing at the time. But school for me was the place where I could forget and just escape. Whereas actually I should probably be dealing with everything that was going on. So if my attendance is at 100% and something really traumatic has happened weeks before, you need to be questioning why that's happening. Um, but no one did because I was the good kid who was strong enough to deal with it and get over it. Um, again, I've just rambled, but I think that's that's all I want to say. <laughs> Not at all. It's really, really interesting to just hear you turn it on its head like that, that actually 100% attendance, like when somebody's going through a lot of a lot of turmoil in their life, is not a good sign that they're dealing with things. Thank you. That's really interesting. Uh, B. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so much that I'd love to say. It's difficult to um, choose what to focus on. But um, I guess the thing that's uh, really struck me throughout this whole conversation is the complete uh, neglect around people's context um, in terms of thinking about mental health. And I think it's bizarre that in the 21st century, with everything that we know, um, these two things are, are still split off, learning and behavior and the context of people's lives. Um, I struggle with the term mental health. I think it's a bit vague. No one really knows what we're actually talking about. It can actually block, I think, us talking about what's really going on. Um, I think that what it's trying to refer to is our internal experience, which everyone obviously has this really rich, incredible internal world. Um, an internal world that's incredibly intelligent. It responds to what's happening around us. Um, and so these things we call mental health problems, very natural adaptive responses to things going on around us that don't feel right to us. Um, the signals that something's wrong. And so within a school system, where there's no space to explore what that internal experience is and for that to be heard and accepted is uh, inevitably going to make um, that distress and that internal experience worse. If we don't have the space to speak and be heard, it won't go away. We, we, you know, we, we carry it and we will continue to carry it. Um, and it, yeah, it just, it baffles my mind that people don't understand the significance of that within schools. I mean, they're trying to focus on, you know, they want the attendance to go up, they want the behavior to improve, but they're neglecting that blatantly obvious reality about what it means to be a human. That if we feel like we can't be present for whatever for these reasons that stop people from being present, when, you know, we're not gonna be able to do, do that. And so to be punished and to made to feel like there's something wrong with you in that situation where you're responding in a healthy way is inherently traumatizing. And to stay in a system for the whole of your developing life where your mind is forming, where you know, your perception of your worldview is forming, um, you're, you're being conditioned into a belief that when you respond naturally to disturbing events in your environment, there's something wrong with you. Um, and this isn't limited to the education system. This falls over into the mental health system too. People are pathologized. They're given these labels and they're sent back into the place where the distress is coming from. Um, and Liddy, just listening to you, you know, like it makes sense. Your anxiety was intelligent, right? You were like, hey, whoa, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe, you know? And it just makes, breaks my heart that no one was able to, support you to feel safe, right? The focus became on something else. And I guess my experience in the last few years is that this isn't, I think it gets tricky when we start thinking about people who are more vulnerable than others. I completely understand where that comes from, but ultimately we can never know how vulnerable someone feels and what makes them vulnerable. And when every year we do research, um, I'm working with six colleges, and we do a whole school survey asking students their experiences. And I'd say 80% of students mention stress and anxiety. And I'd probably say the school would say about 
experience anxiety because it's human to feel stressed and anxious when you've got loads going on at home. <laughs> um, and final thing I want to say is um, I think one of the key problems is that the, fo the sole focus on exams and grades causes this stress for teachers as well. So thinking back to what I was saying about you, Liddy, like, I think one of the reasons why teachers find it so challenging to, to be present in this way and to hear and listen to these experiences is because their bodies are stressed and they can't concentrate and they can't, they don't feel they have the time. They would love to have the time, but um, they're trapped. Everyone's trapped and there's no room to breathe. And it doesn't take a huge amount of space to, actually for people to be heard and for that to start decreasing, right? Um, but for, yeah, for young people to have all of their self-worth based on the grades they achieve and the attendance that they have, um, it's, it's traumatizing for millions and millions of people. Yeah, yeah, it's, it sure is. I'd like to, I'd like to come to come to that in a second and to sort of to zoom out and, and look at the stats. Um, I know that you're across this, Fran, and, and there's been some new figures out recently because we've heard lots about personal stories. But the, to, to get a, to get a sense of the the scale of the problem, um, would you, are you happy to just briefly um, to to give us a, a, a sense of the scale of, of of the extent to which people are struggling in this way? Yeah, sure. So, so we have so much data in education, don't we? But we know very little about this. So the last set of annual stats, which goes back to 2018-19, because they didn't do the following year because of the pandemic, there were 772,000 children uh, classed as persistent absentees, which is missing 10% or more of education, and about 60,500 missing half of the academic year. And really worryingly, 43% of those absences with no formally recorded reason. So there are 23 absence codes, but the codes that are used in these situations are usually O, which is other unauthorised absence, C, which is other authorised absence, so you're lucky then because you won't get fined or prosecuted, uh, N is no reason yet, um, and then if you're really lucky and you've produced a lot of medical evidence, you might be I, but it doesn't distinguish you from a child that might have chickenpox, so... Um, the, the latest stats are just for autumn term 2020, when the numbers are up to 916,000. Uh, normally, you wouldn't take a term's stats because each term has its own characteristics, so you'd look at the whole year, but those are the latest stats we've got. Um, 93,500 children missing half of the year. And strangely, and we haven't got to the bottom of this yet, the DfE are, have decided now not to drill down into persistent absence statistics so it looks as though, from here on in, we will not be able to look at the specific cohorts that sit under persistent absence. All we will be able to see is the level of absence in one percentage bands. Clever, huh? <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. So we're trying to find out. Um, it's clear that they know there's a problem, but um, what worries me is what they might do about that problem. And I think... Ever since we started, and we, we use these figures a lot because they're so shocking, um, ever since we started, I've worried that by drawing attention to this, the government, the DfE, will just create a bigger stick, you know, uh, because that's how they approach stuff. 
and they just don't this whole relational everything everybody has said it's just so obvious and so true it's such a complicated problem but at the heart of it is trust and relationships and compassion and honestly you know we 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 do webinars every now and again and i often say that in our situation if somebody had said to me at the beginning when my daughter was eight this happens it happens not just to you we'll sort it don't worry you know oh my goodness that journey would have started out so differently, so differently. And the, and the lose a day of attendance, drop a grade drives me insane because my daughter literally did one term of secondary school and the rest of secondary school was at home, tutored through a statement. I've never regarded her as a send child, but that's the route we had to go down. It's the route she was pushed down, we were pushed down. Um, and a lot of that time was spent just healing and she got the grades. We found a school that was very different to the previous school. Fantastic. Why can't all schools be like that? She never went there, but we got the grades she needed to go to college and she's been to university. None of that should have been necessary. That path for her should have been... It, all she needed was just people to show respect and, and allow her to trust them. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. No, not at all, not at all. I remember you saying when we spoke about this previously that that the school when when she first when she was she about year age eight when she suddenly yeah. said I, I don't want to go, and you said that the school was very sympathetic for about a week or two. Well, so the primary, primary school were quite good, and there's something about what I was told at the time is that when a child is about eight, they suddenly become aware of death and certain things. So I don't know if that had something to do with it. We had a really difficult summer just before. The primary school were great and they wanted to help and they watched cams kind of flailing around and eventually said, this is useless. And they stepped in and a TA helped us. And she did two more years fine, but the transition to secondary, which is what often happens, one secondary school completely, um, well, effectively off rolled us, not interested, don't want you here. Um, whereas another secondary school, which is what you're talking about, literally a mile down the road, a deputy head who just, his ethos was, I am here for my local community. If that's a child like Meg, so be it. She never has to say, I get goosebumps still thinking of it. I had a, I collapsed on his floor and he said, look, I'll take her on roll. She never has to set foot in my school. She never has to set foot in my school. He registered our house as an exam centre. He sent invigilators so she could do her GCSEs, so she could go to sixth form college. And on the last day of secondary school, he arranged with us, he called us when all the other children had gone, and he asked if Meg would come in to collect her hoodie. And he didn't look at me, didn't speak to me. Meg, I'm so delighted to meet you after all this time, and I'm so pleased for you. Why is that possible for some and not, and not for others? And, and how can we have a system which actually ensures that schools operate like that? It's too much down to individual judgment and school leadership. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, it is incredibly powerful. That's what good looks like, folks, in case you're wondering. <laughs> um, say, can I say one more thing? It's just to have conversations like this for us is many, many years ago. But this is so triggering that the trauma that you go through and the guilt that you feel sits so close to the surface that I have had to turn my camera off sometimes because it's just, I can't bear the thought that people are still going through this. It's just, can't continue. Yeah, anyway. in such large numbers as well. Um, Heidi. Yeah, I just, what um, I really wanted to 
respond to what B said about, it really struck a chord in me when she said about, you know, this is a human experience. You know, being alive is stressful. <laughs> um, and, and it is, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't think she actually used those words, but you can have that be. <laughs> um, but I, I, what I really was thinking when she was speaking about that was the expectations that we put on children, you know, like for a healthy child, um, you know, for a, for a child who maybe is developing at a normal level, even the pressure of being in a classroom environment for five or six hours a day, expected to be ready to learn the whole time, you know, expected to be, you know, eyes front, all of that jazz that is like how teachers assess whether a child's engaged because they've got a, kid, a classroom of 30 kids and all they can do is do a quick sweep round and make sure everyone's head is facing in the right direction. But the pressure to to be in that state all the time, five days a week, is huge. And that would be a lot for an adult, let alone for a child regardless of what else they had going on, whether whether they had other challenges outside, whether they had difficulties, you know, personal health, whatever it might be at home. And I think it comes down to that we are telling our kids, this is the level you are expected to perform at now and for the rest of your life. You have to push yourself. You have to be, you know, there's that kind of like cult of busy. If you're not going, oh, I'm so busy, then there's something wrong with you. That, um, that you know, that you should actually strive for 11 GCSEs when actually five will get you into any level of next stage of education if that's what you want to do. Five GCSEs will get you onto a college course. Five GCSEs will get you onto A-levels. Why are we asking our kids to get 11? Um. And we're setting our kids up for failure as adults because we're telling them you have to work hard, you have to push yourself at all costs. And if we did this to people in a workplace, occupational therapy would have to step in and you'd have huge sick levels within that organisation. But for some reason, because it's kids, you know, it's hugely childist. You know, I think that's a massive problem in our society right now that we do not, we do not prioritize the rights of our children as human beings but this notion that that's what I thought when when B was speaking I was just had this moment I thought oh my god the pressure I know we put our kids under pressure and we bandy it about you know oh SATs are so stressful Ofsted reports are so stressful you know we're not really drilling down into what we are asking what we are saying to our kids is work hard to the point of exhaustion or you're not a valuable human being and I think that that is the that's the crux of what we're talking about. And no wonder that has an impact on attendance. No wonder. And I really challenge people to think about that when they're, you know, and I get that people are crowd, proud of their kids. Of course I do. You know, as a child who was a high achiever, I still tell people what I got for my GCSEs. Because <laughs> it was important to me because people told me it needed to be important. But we need to challenge that as a whole, that we are putting these huge expectations on children to overachieve and overdeliver because we're setting them up for failure as adults and as humans. And I think that we really need to start making that a conversation that we have beyond the, the children who are struggling. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Lucy? Yeah, um... So I just, something that I think B said it a minute ago, uh, she said, you never now know how vulnerable someone is. And I heard that and I was like, yes. So um, 
for me, um, so I have an older sister who is transgender, which makes talking about the past confusing because you have the whole pronouns and the, like, I had a brother and now I have a sister and they're the same person, but all of the members are he. Um, so my sister uh, is autistic um, and so we all went to the same primary school. There's three years between us. So I think that when I went to the same primary school as my sister and that kind of, she was quite kind of high need, kind of visible need. And then I went and I was a kind of very kind of typical masked autistic female. They went, oh, this is great. She's so well behaved. You know, she's quiet. Like she's not giving us any problems um and so for a lot of primary school I just went under the radar and I think in about year five I just kind of exploded <laughs> so um around year five uh so my parents are divorced and I was at my dad's house for the weekend um and I started feeling ill I started feeling a bit sick uh so I went down and I got a drink. It was like quite late in the evening. And then I was like, I really don't feel well. Um, and what ended up happening was I was having a massive panic attack. But I didn't know what this was. We didn't know what this was. So we ended up with the ambulance, paramedics. I was hyperventilating. I felt sick. Like people say with, like they, like people say a panic attack panic attacks you feel like you're gonna die but you don't know how kind of intense that feeling of I am gonna die I am dying like what is happening and then it was a panic attack but it felt like I was gonna explode I was gonna die I can't breathe I can't think um so after that the school got some a school counsellor in for a couple of years, I kind of bobbed along. I think I kind of, I've described myself as I'm like a swan. So if you've ever seen, so the swans glide and underneath <laughs> their feet are going absolutely mad. So um, I moved to a secondary school. I moved to a grammar school for secondary school. I looked around it and I thought, this is my dream place. Like this is where I want to be. So first kind of year, yeah, I was all right. Um, but the ethos was just wrong. Um, so I had been self-harming in some way from the age of nine. Um, and that wasn't detected or kind of known until I was about 15. And so by the time I was 15, I was depressed, I was self-harming, I was suicidal, and I ended up in a tier four unit. Um, and that was, I mean, a tier four unit. They're not fit for purpose. They're not, they're not suitable for almost anyone. They're really just not, they need like destroying and redoing because they're just no good. So I ended up, I spent seven months, eight, yeah, seven and a half months in that unit. 
the first couple of months I was still masked. So I was quiet. I wasn't happy. I was very not happy. And then the mask fell down and I spent about four months sectioned under Section 3 of the Mental Health Act. And I think those seven months both saved my life and kind of destroyed my life because before that I was gonna I was gonna go along the conveyor belt of school you know do G do GCSEs do A levels I wanted to study classics at Cambridge that was my that was my dream but these experiences have meant that now I've done my GCSEs two years later than everyone else I'm two years older than the people in my classes um, and I'm going to go to college and um, like Heidi was saying about you need five GCSEs that's all you need so I've got my five GCSEs I did two and then I did three so I did two GCSEs and then I did three GCSEs separate and I'm not going to go to Cambridge because that's not possible anymore but I'm going to go to college and I'm going to work with animals doing something I love but if if even if I was if I was diagnosed with autism earlier if they saw that I was vulnerable not just that oh she's so well behaved my life would have been different and I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but I know that so much suffering didn't have to happen, but the system made it happen. And I think that's why I am who I am today, fighting for all of the young people who are different and who don't know that they're different and just think that they're wrong. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Lucy. It's that's an incredibly difficult thing to listen to, actually. Very, it must have been. I can't even imagine, you know, what it's what what you've been through. Um, so, when when you say that the system made it happen, what is it that you would like to have seen different? What, like, how how could the system have responded and treated you differently so that it didn't end up being so traumatic for you? I don't think anyone ever asked me what I needed. I think if at any point, if someone had gone, Lucy, we can see that something's not right. What do you need? It's such a simple question. What do you need? And no one is thinking about what an individual needs. Everyone's thinking about like what targets do we need um what boxes do we need to tick and it's not personalized it really is a, it's a conveyor belt of kind of systems yeah so just a bit of person-centered personalized and kind of compassionate yeah. which sounds basic but isn't happening. Yeah, it's very much like the top-down system, isn't it? I'd like to come, I know there's a few people who got their hands up, but I'd like to think about like things like changes that have happened, government changes, changes that have happened in schools, 
Will talked about academies earlier. Like, what are the causes? What are some of the causes that are putting all of this pressure, this sort of top-down pressure on young people? And that, like, like you say, it's such a powerful thing. What do you need to to actually to listen, to take the time to listen to to and to take people, young people's voices, really seriously? Um, I think Deborah, you had your hand up first. Um, quickly to answer your question as well around like the top heavy pressures, I think like we were, we've been speaking about Ofsted, it's like made into such a big thing. Sometimes in schools, the the children that are deemed naughty are like separated and are, are removed from the community when Ofsted come in because schools have this image that they want to portray. It's It becomes such a powerful thing. It becomes part of their legacy. It's like, this is a moment where we can create a legacy for the next couple of years until our next Ofsted report. It means that we can get all the young people from primary schools that are doing amazing things. We can create this image to the local community for people to want to come into our schools. But that is all at the detriment of the young people that are currently in the school and in that community. And I think what you were saying, Lucy, around what young people really want and just that simple question, like for us in this call, it's such a simple question and we we're just mesmerized as to why it's still being missed from the conversation. But I think, yeah, there's definitely a loophole and there's definitely a reason as to why that, that question is being missed out. And I think, unfortunately, it does come down to schools are stretched. Schools don't have enough facilities. There's not enough budget going, put it, being put aside to each individual school. And yeah, I think it's just not at the forefront of, the government's minds so it's about us all of us coming as a collective and making noise that is that they can't avoid pretty much and it's like us creating chaos and causing commotion so they are forced to listen to us and forced to listen to our experiences but I think it's really hard as well because like Fran you were talking about persistent absence and how it's just put, brushed under the carpet. And I think I see it in so many of the girls that I work with, where because their behavior, similar to you, Lucy, because their behavior isn't loud and boisterous, it's missed. And similar to my own experience, I was just getting on with life. I was, I was that swan that you described, but deep down there was school refusal, but it just didn't lead into what they were seeing at the forefront. And I think that's the hardest part. Um, and I just, yeah, I think it's just, it's difficult because, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's it for me. It just, yeah, it gets me really irate and frustrated because it's just a simple question of asking young people how they are and just allowing them to ex voice their experience because how can you help change if you don't listen to them? And it's just, it's it's hard because that initial question in the beginning, like you said, Lucy, would have saved can save so many young people from going down a journey that is preventable yeah yeah thank you um ellie and liddy um liddy's got a few things just to share but um before we do that i just wanted to uh mention very quickly the solutions so for me it comes down to um respecting all human beings uh, um, including children so it's about listening to authentic uh, uh, with with respect and with honor to uh, really listen to other people's experiences and actually then think about what agency do I have uh, 
how can I help here? What needs to happen? And if I don't have the agency, who can who 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 can I bring on and not put it on the family or the child to seek help elsewhere? Because all of this sort of predisposition to helpful signposting, often you're just pinging around. And actually, I can't tell you how many times I went round the houses and I ended up back in the same place with no solutions and higher levels of crisis. Um, but um, just thinking about as well, just sitting with. What we're talking about here today is suffering, vulnerability, and um, as Bea said, it is all understandable human life experience that none of us want to happen, and it's really difficult to sit alongside it and be faced with it. But we need to hold in mind that it, it does happen, but we don't need to, you know, that the, the if we don't all accept that we have needs, we talk about this a lot, everybody has needs, there's chronic needs, lifelong needs, Acute needs, needs. We all have needs. And it's incumbent on the services around us. We all pay our taxes and contribute to the system um, so that those needs can be met. And where those needs aren't being met, we have a fundamental problem with those systems. Now, part of talking about that means that shame blame goes around the system, you know, and those in power go, oh, don't vote for that, that party because they're worse than that party. And we all end up with, oh, what's the solution? But the solution for me is coming together, knowing that needs are normal, normalizing is so important, understanding that vulnerability is difficult to come alongside and be faced with. Often a lot of our families, Heidi talked about it, Will talked about the experience of noticing his mother, that when you start not being able to keep up with the system, it's very, very easy to be othered, to sort of then become isolated I often felt like the parent with cooties you know that I what was happening to my child was somehow I could feel the anxiety in other parents around me that almost it would transmit because we were a normal family and they would ask oh how awful really nice to catch up with you bye um, and off we go to after school club with my child who's achieving and, and fitting the system so I think I think there's there's but for me it's conversations that are authentic honourable and actually deliver that really do listen and value and respect child voice and family experience. Um, so that was my two penneth worth. But do you want to um, just quickly talk about so we're short on time? Yeah, I just want to say I'm sorry I've talked so much. <laughs> not um, at all, Liddy, not at all. Did you want to just share these bits very quickly? Um, yeah, so I have uh, three books here. Don't need to show like every single one, but... I have just one page in this book here, and it's called A Light for the Girl and the Galdurian, and it's a comic about a girl who has anxiety and a Galdurian who kind of takes her on an adventure to find her pig wizard grandpa. <laughs> um, but it, there's mo this moment in the book, and the way it shows her anxiety is by it, hang on, surrounding her in darkness. See the art style, which is really, very cool. And um, on, on this page here, um, it says, I don't mean it. So this is the girl talking with anxiety. She's explaining, um, I'm sorry, I haven't been much of a travel companion. I feel like I've been a big jerk. And then she explains to, I can't remember his name, um, Cad, I think, um, 
why she does it. She's saying, I don't mean it. I just get nervous all the time. Even when I really don't want to, when I want to be brave or daring, instead I just get overwhelmed. I'm afraid of doing something wrong or losing something or someone or failing. And I freeze. It's frustrating. And that is kind of what happened before I came on this. I was, I really wanted to do it, but I was very nervous too. And it was very scary, and I just didn't want to. So if you do want to get this book, it is there. Um, and it's called, it's by Tim Probert. I think that's how you say that. Yeah. Um, but then there's these two more books here, which are uh, one part and two part. Um, so this is part one called Real Friends, and part two called Best Friends. And it's about... Um, so the woman who wrote it, it's about her life. Um, and she's called Shannon Hale, if you want to find it. And it's about her going through her school life and how she got bullied and how she wanted to write stories and be brave. And she felt nervous a lot. And her friends, they weren't really friends. It was kind of like me. I had friends, but they just faked it just to be mean all over again. And it goes through her, how she went then into high school she wants to, and it shows her thinking in her head, once if I do something wrong, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. Um, and it's about her anxiety and what she went through. And I just wanted to share how these books, also what I went through, because um, there's so there's so many people that you don't realise what who, what people have went through. And it's just, you you people want to tell their story and I would love I the, another reason why I came on this school because I wanted to share my story with the world and I just think that I, I would love to write a book about what I went through and things like that because when I grow up pe people say this and grown-ups make fun I'm like oh you're never going to be able to do this but my dreams are becoming an actor an artist a singer and personally I think I already am a pretty good artist and singer I have a hot two uh, sketchbooks full of art that I've done from art classes and things like that and I sing this is super embarrassing but I literally don't care what people think um I sing in my room and use my imagination in like Star Wars and uh Steven Universe French Time you know all the amazing cartoons that are out there movies and then I also I also uh, I love going um, out bike riding and, you know, I just love, I, I don't care what people think. Do you I don't think, care do you, if do you I sleep with a billion cuddlies. <laughs> do, you, do you think school helped you with all of those things? Honestly, yes. I don't think that without any of my anxiety or what they put me through, even though I never want that to happen again to anyone, I wouldn't be the person I am today as singing an artist and someone who's trying to figure out how to write a book. <laughs> and just there are so many people grown-ups who just they think that you can't do that you say that you're going to do that but you can't you're you won't be able to achieve it because you're just a kid I don't care you're wrong you're not right go away <laughs> but yeah that's just all I want to say Amazing. Wow. Thank you. I think you're winning a legion of fans today and future buyers of your book, Lydia. We're waiting with, with eager anticipation. Uh, let's go to B. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, bring in something around another way that the, the system sort of causes this trauma. And I'm going to follow Ellie's lead and bring in a solution as well, because I think that's that's really important. Um, 
so I think, you know, as we know, everyone sort of thinks about trauma as these big events, but it's it's so much more subtle than that. I think trauma is in our everyday lives, and I think it's like happening at such a, a mass scale that we, we couldn't comprehend because of the complexity of it. But to me, trauma is any experience that really splits us off from our sense of self. So something happening to us that splits us off from our sense of self or something happening internally that makes us feel like we have to become something other than who we are. And so within the education system, like I remember having a being in a room with eight young people and they were talking about how um, when the exams started kicking in, so they must have been about 13, 14 when those conversations started happening they started to abandon all of the things that connected them with themselves, authentically with themselves. Um, some of them loved sports, some of them loved music, some of them loved reading. All of those things that helped them develop uh, a unique sense of self, which is what creates psychological health, had to be abandoned. And I find that really disturbing. Like if you really think about that, what's happening there, because what the system is conditioning millions of people year after year to believe is that to, as and Heidi said this, to have value, you have to be something other than who you are. And recently I've been reflecting on this because that trauma doesn't go away unless it's addressed. So it, it, like, it will remain with you in your worldview, your self-concept, that I always need to do something else to be accepted and valued as a human being. And this has remained in my life. It's only this year when, until like the pandemic happened and I had a chance to really step back that I started to analyze this. And I realized, actually, like I have some really strong mindsets around what um, ma makes me valuable uh, in the world, where my, what my worth is tied to. And I think it was really powerful what Heidi said, um, you know, around like this is in workplaces as well. Um, you know, it creates that idea that we have to constantly be overexerting ourselves. And yeah, that's something that breaks my heart. But in terms of the solutions, I don't think that the that they need to be complicated. I think we've mentioned them here. I think it's we need spaces where people can be heard, where they can bring that authentic experience, where they can let go of the roles, the ideas, that you know, all of those perceptions that come from an external source and can just express who they are. And that's, I've seen it. Like my favorite part of life is just seeing people, I can see it in people's eyes when that part of themselves emerges. It is so beautiful and it never leaves that part of ourselves that's authentic and who we truly are. Um, and, and we can do it. We have an opportunity now. You know, the whole world's falling apart. What a brilliant time to start rebuilding. And all it is is about recognizing our shared humanity. What a relief to let go of all of these roles and masks that we've carried for so long, right? Um, so I, I, I have hope, you know, I have faith. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's lovely to hear. Um, I just want to share something quickly with you that somebody who um, was going to join us today um, wanted me to share, Natalie. She, she's a, she was a teacher for a long time and she wanted to talk about the, like, how long this has been going on. So she said that she, that she said, um, within my own teaching career from 1988, which is when the Education Reform Act came in that brought in the national curriculum, 
um, onwards, um, she said, I witnessed as a primary school teacher, mental health issues arising in year three to six children, so that's seven to 11 year olds, as early as the mid nineties, not long after SATs came in. She said mental health, like the language of mental health wasn't really a thing back then, but she was troubled by what she was increasingly seeing in children, the things we've been talking about, stress, anxiety, tears, behavioral issues, especially when her own children began to become affected. She said at the time, feeling desperate, I called the NSPCC and the County Council's education department around the late 90s, early 2000s, to ask if they had received any calls from children or parents about stress associated with SATs, or if they knew uh, if anyone was even monitoring the impact of SATs on schools and on, and on young people's well-being. Neither organization was aware of any issues, nor of anybody monitoring the impact of SATs. I then thought about taking the UK government to the Court of Human Rights, but I didn't know how to do this. And to be honest, I felt alone in taking this action. She said, I expected this all to explode or implode years ago, but somehow it's kept going and it's worsened over the last decade. And people have been talking about the changes that have happened since, since the coalition came in. Um, she said, but it's important to acknowledge historically the number of years that poor mental health has existed within education and to acknowledge the number of people, especially pupils, but also teachers' well-being um, that, that this has had an impact on. So I just wanted to share that because I want to understand like when we're talking about the solutions, you know, there, are, there, are, there it seems like there are certainly things that we can do at the school level. With, regardless of any change of government policy, but it seems like schools, individual teachers finding the time to ask children, you know, what do you need? Are you okay? Can we have a conversation? And finding the space and the time in the, in the day to, to have those conversations, checking in with young people at the start of the day and at the start of each lesson, say. Um, but um, I wonder if people have got any any more thoughts on things that we can do to to to. On, on, to loosen some of these screws, to loosen some of this top-down pressure that makes schools... Somebody commented on the Facebook feed earlier that they were working for one of the academy chains that was mentioned earlier, and it's all about results. It's all just like, we need to be competing, we need to be, you know, like, at the top end of the league table. And Ian Cunningham made a really good point in, in his book where he said that, like, if a young person is struggling with mental health. Uh, it's a bit like what you were saying earlier, Lottie, like uh, for, the, for the school, that's a problem because they're not going to achieve their grades. But for that young person, the most important learning that they can undertake at that time is how can I stop feeling like this? And the school just hasn't got the, any sort of capacity, the space in, in the day, the provision to, to allow that conversation to happen. Um, so I'm interested to, to move this towards solutions as well. And I'm also aware of the time, it's two o'clock. Um, and so this has gone on for longer than, than build, but I think it's really important that we hear all of these stories. So let's go to Lottie and maybe we should work our way around the screen um, and think about and think about final words, last words, and any idea, any thoughts on on what anybody watching or listening to this can do if they're if they're in a position where they're able to exercise some power, what they can do to improve the uh the situation for young people so let's start with you lottie thanks um i think there's many things i could say like funding's a big one of them uh training's a big one like there's so much honestly um but there are two things that stuck out to me that we can all do working from the ground up because i know that if it was in our power we would be funding mental health systems for a long time ago um <laughs> one of them is allowing young people to be the driving force of their own recovery um and that is something that doesn't happen a lot or at all actually um i think lucy said earlier all she needed was someone to ask what she 
what she needed to get better. And I felt that so much because when I've gone through things, no one has asked. And um, I remember in year 11, I had a really um, awful time, which I won't get into, but um, my year team did nothing. No one at the school did nothing. It took my head of sick form who, again, wasn't even in the picture at that point because that's a completely different part of education to turn around and say, look, what's up? What do you need? Like, I'm here. We'll sort it because that's where I was going next year. Um, but he shouldn't have had to do that. And he was in the capacity where he was dealing with a whole nother sick form of students who had loads of rubbish stuff going on. Um, that should have been done by the school and the school should have had time set aside for me to be able to deal with that. Um so yeah that's a big thing just allowing us to be the driving force because it never happens I had another point but it's gone from my head which is not helpful um (laughs) uh, yeah it was about training um and I think I have been thinking about times in my life when I've spoken to people um and one of them was I was sent to a counsellor and the first thing they said to me was well that's right I'm not trained I don't really know what I'm doing so I'm not going to like judge you or help or whatever And that was the worst thing to hear that someone wasn't trained enough because all I needed was someone to help. And at that point they were like, well, I can't, Um, I'm just here for you to offload to. And that's not, wasn't useful for me. Um, So that training is really, really important. And I'm not talking about mental health first aided training, although that's great. I'm talking about proper training, having like mental health nurses in schools, because when we've had people come in, of that kind of uh, qualification level that's when we've started to see change happen because they have the time and the expertise for students who need it um, and not just students who are presenting as obviously in need of help but students uh, like me like Liddy like Lucy who are a lot quieter and have gone completely under the under the wraps until someone's actually picked it apart um, I think that's it <laughs> Okay, thank you, thank you, uh, Anna. What are your thoughts on what you've been what you've been hearing today? Um, I just put a comment um, in the chat about the power imbalance being key, and that children are expected to attend so that they can tick their attendance <laughs> boxes, um, but not be heard. And I think what's underlying that is if they actually ask the children and properly listen they know at some level that there isn't a flex in the system to accommodate the changes that are required. So I don't really have a solution to do that, but then I just started thinking about what could be, you know, a ground level change that would start to address that power imbalance and give the children some feeling of control over their own experience and destiny in the education system and just spontaneously came up with the idea of perhaps a, a children's steering group on well-being. So they lead it. It's all got to be child-led. I absolutely agree with what Lottie just said. It's got to be driven by the children. Um, again, tied into the power imbalance that because they're children, they um they don't sort of understand the wider system you know what we have been talking about um the wider systemic issues and how it links into all of that they can't articulate at that level you know my son can't still can't really articulate himself he's getting better as he's understanding his own anxiety um but you know as a child and then especially if it's a teacher asking (laughs) 
are they going to freely express themselves? Are they able to identify what, what they need? Um, I think they probably are, you know, if it's done in the right way. Um, but yeah, that was my thought within the schools. There could, you know, there's school councils, aren't there, that children represent their peers on. But yeah, there should be a specific thing. Um, another thing that's been occurring to me is that, you know, during the lockdown, there was, I know this is harsh, but it did feel in our case that the kind of well-being was a bit of lip service. It was, it was good. There were some really good sessions, you know, on a Friday afternoon, there would be, um, I think there were about three in total during one of the lockdowns, online well-being, make sure you're looking after yourself. And I actually thought it was it was good. There was a specific member of staff that was designated to produce those. They were good. But it did feel very much like an adjunct. Like, here, we're going to, for 45 minutes, think about well-being. Right, back to the class teacher. Boom, right you need to be getting this piece of work in and I'm going to be chasing the people that I know aren't registering in the morning. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't um, like Fran, you've, when you've explained about the trauma informed, um, what is it? Trauma, yeah, that thing. Um, <laughs> the trauma informed um, training, you've described it as it needs to be this, uh, the focus on wellbeing needs to be running like a stick of rock through the school. Um, and the, yes, it, our experience was there was a nod to it, but actually that was very separate to what then was going on with the class teacher in the classroom setting, um, whether virtual or otherwise. Um, yeah, I think that, that you know, that for us, there's been a, a major battle getting the anxiety recognized for what it was and how serious it was. It was um, almost like an affront to the school that we were saying our child's not managing. It was like, well, they tried to just sort of deal with it themselves and uh, were very authoritative in that. Like, it's just a blip. We will manage it. We will get him through. We've done it before with a child in the year above. And well, who knows how she's now doing at secondary school. Don't think they've followed up. But um, anyway, it was very much, we will manage it. Um, so we had to get the GP also was dismissive. Um, so again, yeah, it does fall down to um, specific, you know, members of staff within the different systems, like how compassionate are they? How knowledgeable are they um, about mental health difficulties and acknowledging it for what it is and directing you in the right way? Uh, so yeah, a real battle. We had to go private to get a diagnosis to make the school listen. Um, so yeah, recognition was the first key battle. Now I'm onto the battle of um, trying to access and secure the support that is needed. So yeah, I mean, it comes down to funding, doesn't it? it yeah, it just doesn't feel very joined up at all. It, somehow it's got to be this message training has got to be delivered to everyone involved in all of the systems and not just dependent on if someone happens to be a more humane compassionate person that your child happens to come across in their journey um, yeah. it can't be that haphazard it just can't well-being first everything else will follow um but yeah 
Yeah, thank you. It's so it's so mad to think about like some of the language that, that you use and that other people use when they say that like, I had to fight for my kid or I had to stand up for them or stand up to the system. Um, I'm trying to sort of understand wh- where how that comes about because when you, you know, like teachers are nearly always really lovely people who genuinely like want the best for young people. There are definitely pressures on them to focus on exams and performance and stuff. Um, but you're right. Like, I don't think that anybody is to blame like, in, on an individual level. We're not saying that, you know, this is like on, on teachers' shoulders that they need to somehow do better. But uh, there's a system level of thinking that like, you're right, that it needs to be far more joined up. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a big old problem. That, um, you, you have to be at your strongest all of a sudden you have to find this strength when you're at your most vulnerable. <laughs> and, and it's just awful because you, all you need is support. You need, you need people reaching out to you like, yes, what do you need? It comes back to that, doesn't it? What do you need? What does your child need, first of all? What do you need as parents? But instead you have to, well, as immediately as you can, switch to going on the, well, defence initially, because the default is to assume that the problem is at home, <laughs> which is weird. Um, but that's where it goes, first of all. So you very quickly learn that you have to be very careful what you say. Um, and so that it, anything you say can be turned and sort of used against you. And the problem is reinforced, again, the power imbalance. Yeah, you're immediately on the back foot and it's... Yeah, it's a very scary place to be in because, you know, there's the law as well. And my son was told by the head teacher, you know, it's the law that you must come to school. <laughs> That's really helpful. Um, yeah, suddenly you're just up against the systems <laughs> and all that power um, when you're in crisis and at your most vulnerable. So, um, yeah, it's all wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow. That's very powerful. Thank you. Um, let's go to you next, Deborah. Uh, what are your final words on what you've been hearing today? Um, yeah, it was a really powerful conversation. I think for me, all teachers need to be like, yeah, trauma-informed and trained at, to be able to use the right language when talking about mental health. Because I think my own experience was like, I only ever felt comfortable going to one teacher and that teacher was the safeguarding lead. But because her sole job was dealing with all the safeguarding issues in the school, she was often out with social workers or she was never present. So I was then that child that I've already described of walking around the building, trying to clear my head, but then getting put down as truancy. Whereas if I knew that other teachers were trained and had the language to be able to talk to me about what I'm experiencing, I could just go into any classroom and go and speak to that teacher. But I think it was, like you said, Anna, around that power imbalance. Young people don't believe that their teachers are human. Like, there's still that myth of, like, teachers live in school, for example. And it's like, if there was a time in a day where young people could really understand and get into the, not the lives of a a teacher, but really understand who that teacher is as an individual, then they might feel more of a connection. But because they're still so distant, they're seen as, young people are seen as inferior. Teachers are seen as these gods that are in charge of everything and will get you these grades and stuff. 
they don't feel comfortable to be able to go and talk to them. So I think if that was something that can change, exactly, everything's about relationships. You need relatable relationships to be able to get through life. Like, And that's something that we really pride ourselves on at FBB, about building relationships and allowing young people to feel comfortable and willing, allowing them to have autonomy and the willingness to be able to ex openly talk about their experiences. Um, and yeah, I think that's like the main thing, but also the last point that I put into the chat was just around reintegration and allowing young people to believe that they have the ability to come back into the system. Because I think that was one thing that I really struggled with. So yeah, I was out of school for year nine, year 10 and half of year 11, came back to do my GCSEs, and was like, yeah, Deborah, you got back into school without any help, but then went into sixth form and was absent again. And it's like, how can we? And it was horrible because one, I didn't want to go back to school because there was learning loss and I just felt like I was behind everyone. So I was like, well, now I don't want to come back into school, which was that period of year 10. Then I did manage to come into school because yet again, there was that pressure of getting my GCSEs. No one was really taking the time to assist my mum in being able to, yeah, find out all these different plans of how I can learn at home or how I can do other things. So therefore I felt also a pressure of being like, I don't want to let down my family. I've seen the strain that I've put on my mom already. Let me just push myself and get into school, which was, yeah, at the detriment of my own mental health yet again. But anyway, and then going into sixth form again, being like, I haven't really dealt with any of the issues previously. And that's now why I'm absent again in, in sixth form. So I think a lot, school's really focusing on okay, yes, our young person is absent at the moment and we support. We need to support them in their process of being absent. But we also need to be forward thinking on how we can now, if they want to have, or if they want to have that option of coming back to school, let's create a plan before they've even had that thought, just in case so they feel motivated or they feel encouraged to even be allowed to have that thought of wanting to come back into school. So I think, yeah making all teachers, in a nutshell, making all teachers like trauma-informed and able to have the language to be able to have conversations around mental health. Um, and then also, yeah, thinking about ways in which we can reintegrate young people that have missed out on long periods of schooling. Yeah, thank you. They're excellent points. Um, B. Yeah, so I guess what I'm really aware of is that any solutions need to really honor everything that's been brought up in this conversation today. It's complex, you know, uh, there's so much here and the solutions need to be relatively simple. And this is what we've been working on at States of Mind for the last four years. So I just wanted to give some kind of positive news. You know, we've been working on this. We've been trying to find those solutions. And there's just three things I wanted to mention, just so that people are aware of to give a bit of hope. So um, a key part of what we do is this therapeutic work within schools. I work with groups for uh, weeks at a time. It's quite in-depth. It's uh, focused, trauma-informed, are very focused on identity and a sense of self. And with hundreds of young people, we've developed this platform called Selfology. And it's a learning platform. It's self-directed, um, again, honoring young people's ability to really, uh, for that self-directed learning. And it's taking all of this stuff that would happen in a therapy room and just bringing it, giving it to them in their everyday lives. 
giving away the power of psychology so that they can apply it every day and transform their sense of self. So it helps them reflect on past life experiences, relationships, um, our body, our feelings, our mind, all of these parts that are neglected within education. Um, Co-created with young people and uh, we're gonna launch it in the world in two weeks time. And this is for schools. And the, the idea is schools, communities, young people in their everyday lives, the idea is schools can say to their students at the beginning of the year, we honor your internal world. We honor this part of your life. Please have access to this as a part of your journey through education. Um, really excited about it. The response from young people shows us that, you know, they like this. It works, right? Um, and alongside this training for teachers, so we're, we're now going to be turning that curriculum into a training program for teachers so they can create these spaces where these experiences can be heard, not pathologized, context is appreciated. Um, that is happening this year too. And the final thing is uh, this year we've been developing an alternative offset evaluation framework with two colleges in collaboration with the Institute of Education. So young people have been designing what an alternative offset inspection framework would look like. It's radically different. They've just come to the end of the first year. Just a few key things. The focus is on well-being, how people feel within school, their experience within school, um, and a focus not on exams but on uh, teacher evaluations, self-evaluations, and evaluations between colleges and schools. Um, and yeah, we want that to be a guiding framework for the future of how schools, you know, assess themselves. You know, um, and it's been developed by students. So that's really exciting. So keep an eye out for that. Um, so all hope is not lost. There are solutions, there are things going on. I think it's easy to forget there's all of us working behind the scenes, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. I look forward to that. Um, let's go to you next, Fran. Yeah, all of that. All of that. Um, I think that one of the things that will be really helpful, some schools are doing it brilliantly despite the system. So, you know, one of the ideas we've had in the past, which is on the back burner because we haven't got time, is to lift up those schools, you know, a sort of awards programme that lifts up those schools and shows others. And they can evidence that it reduces absence and exclusion. And we need more of that evidence to prove to school leaders that, that it, it works to do it differently. But it's kind of despite the system. I think there's a lot of fear in the system and we need school leaders to be brave. And there are things that they can do individually in their own schools. They're, you know, there's a change makers programme. They can get young people's voice. They could do a different transition programme, secondary schools with primaries to, to build relationships with families better. There's lots of things they could do, but it's kind of like they have to, they have to decide themselves that they're going to do that. And, and sometimes find the money for stuff. Money's an issue. Um, what else? I think we try and tell when we do webinars and things, we try and tell individual teachers that everybody, everybody around a child and family has a certain degree of agency. You know, and as a teacher, you could gen up yourself on this issue. You could try and change hearts and minds within school leadership. You know, there's a certain amount of agency you can have building relationships with your own family. Um, I think in terms of the fight, it's the metrics and the gatekeeping of money that cause most of the problems because you've got such conflicting agenda for school leaders. 
they've got to almost decide what do I want to do do I want to look after my pupils and families or do I want to meet the metrics that I'm being judged against in the system the attainment and attendance metrics and there are personal consequences quite often if they don't do that um but yeah I think I think also one of our projects is a book to try and support school leaders to do the right thing by their square pegs and again that's despite the system and it's drawing from paramedics, youth workers, virtual heads, people from other walks of life where we can where we can um, borrow ideas and things that might just work within education. Yeah. Thank you very much. And final words from Ellie and Liddy. Um, I, um, I, everything that everyone else has said with bells on, I uh, completely agree with all of it. Um, I'm so excited about what you're doing, B. I just, oh, uh, it's so uh, wonderful and reassuring and validating and vindicating to know that that's going to be out there. I just, I'm so excited by that. Um, uh, just thinking about training um, and CPD, it's a continuous lived practice. So it's not a one-off twilight session. Um, you know, and actually, if I think back to some of the really difficult meetings that we had with professionals and with school leaders, I could see the paralysis in their eyes. And I've learned that that is because there is a knowledge or capacity deficit. It's not because they're inhuman um, and that actually they don't have the tools. But it's really important to hold in mind that those tools take practice and reinforcing and uh, because you will screw up because you're a human being. And um, I've had to, I'm a therapeutic parent, so I've had to sort of teach myself. And the only reason it has embedded and become a lived practice is because I've been supported to do it. So um, that, uh, you know, is absolutely fundamental for me. Those giving teachers those therapeutic interrelational tools, the la it's language, it's how do I, how do I approach this situation, not in the way that I always have, but in a new way that's going to shift paradigms and, and have influence um, and build connection so it's how, you know it's all about that I love the idea of what um, uh, Deborah was saying about demystifying teachers actually if you think about the mystery for a very small child or even a teenager that you know children um, teachers are like an alien species and actually if you if we break down the fact that you know the profession is sort of often behind a sort of glass wall if you like or even a brick wall um where you know it's show no mercy look them in the eyes show no fear you know it's all of that whereas actually if you break that down and 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 young people are under, able to understand that there's a person who's come into the room to try to to be with those those people and to try to deliver a knowledge-based memory test of a curriculum but um you know which has its own problems but if if you know if we just um humanize all of us um that for me is where the gold's truth of of improvement lies through that connection it'll bring teachers much uh quicker much uh it'll bring teachers back to their authentic calling to the profession why they went there so they'll get the win-win experience of that interplay with their students with their peers with their colleagues with their family uh, as a therapeutic parent i use the tools everywhere i don't just use it in parenting and it's it's helped me bring myself back to my authentic self so yeah but i'll just leave it with Liddy. um well 
I guess I would just want, you know, safer, more comforting environments. I mean, I honestly don't know what to say because you've all said everything that I kind of want to say. You've all made very valid points and I would love if every single one of that could happen. Um, obviously, it's going to take a long time, though, to get around to changing. Again, people don't like change. But what I would like is... Um, um, I would just like, yeah, safer, more comforting environments, areas where people can just go sit for a minute, breathe. They could just chill for a minute, you know, like a chill room or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's, I don't know what else to say. Can we just say thank say, you? Yes. <laughs> just want to say thank you for hosting, James. It's It's just been brilliant. And we've obviously talked so much, but just Thank you for, yeah, um, for giving us, us the platform. Yeah, well, thank you both uh, to, to you and Fran to, for, for organising it all behind the scenes. Um, it's been a mammoth one. It's been two and a half hours. The point of these campfires was that they were supposed to be shorter. But there's so much to be said here, and I feel like we should have further episodes on this theme um, in the future as well. But this is going to be the last one for a while. We're going to take a pause for the summer. Um, but massive thank you to everybody on the screen um, and to who's already left us um, uh, earlier in the, in the call um, for joining us today, for sharing, you know, so fully of yourselves. It is so important. It feels like it's a hearts and minds thing that needs to happen first and for people to, to connect emotionally to the human stories that are behind these, these galling statistics. Um, and I think that this call has has succeeded in doing that. It's been quite quite incredible to hear um, you know, so much um, richness and sadness, but also like hope and strength that comes through these stories. It's really quite something. Um, I completely agree that the training needs to be needs to be ongoing and not just the odd twilights. But having said that, <laughs> I am doing a, a twilight next week. It's a free thing that, that anyone can join and it's on self-regulation. So it's essentially about teaching in a way that engages young people socially and emotionally as, as well as just cognitively, because it's all focused on memory and knowledge at the moment. And we need to engage young people as, as whole human beings. So this is a live thing that's next Thursday, but it's also going to be available on the, on the same um, YouTube channel that this video will be on for anybody who sees this in the future. You'll be able to find that and hopefully it will go some small way to, to um, spreading some, some research, some fascinating research. There's someone called Mary Helen Imodino Yang, who I've, I've recently um, found out about. She's based over at the University of Southern California um, in LA and she's doing some incredible research with young people um, about exactly this stuff, about engaging them, you know, asking them what do they need, talking to them and asking them about their lived experience which is so often what is missing. So I'm very excited um, to learn more about that and to get to, to know all of you. And um, yeah, thank you all very much indeed. And, uh, and I look forward to, to continuing this conversation down the line. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.